This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Through the years, you can't stop the flow through the years. You can't stop the flow through the years. You can't stop the flow through the years. You can't stop the flow. Hello, one and all, and welcome to the 10th episode of Through the Years, the podcast where two men who bought some souls for rock and roll review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I'm Trevor Dame, joined as always, 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 always by Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how you doing? Trying to figure out what buying souls for rock and roll would be. Like, like rock and roll asked, like we gave them to rock and roll as a gift, basically? Is that what you're saying? Well, people are always selling for rock and roll, but yeah, you know that's it. short. That's short sighted. You know, what about long term investments for rock and roll to take care of their future? Well, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like like rock and roll was like, hey, if you're going down to the Soul Store, can you buy this for me? Because um, because I, I, I you know I, I'm busy right now. So so you went and you picked up some souls for rock and roll. And these souls, they're only uh, going to appreciate in value. Yeah. The only thing is jokes on rock and roll because we just bought them shoe souls. Not even the whole shoe. <laughs> S-O-L-E-S. Get it? I love puns. Well, uh, You can call me the Punisher. That's how much I love puns. We're like WCW. We're with our uh, soul-related puns. <laughs> so, and something that wasn't... Okay, this is the worst segue ever, because my first thought was to say something that wasn't talking about sold out. Wouldn't you, was lo- what- wouldn't you like to have your podcast feature the worst segue ever? I think that would be pretty good. I mean, if, if it's in the Guinness Book of World Records, then yes, I, that, that'll be our way in. Well, I have good but- news for you. Speaking of good news, this is a much better segue, so it'll only be in the middle of the road and not be a good uh, record-holding segue, but speaking of good news, there are a plenty of great podcasts at the Place to Be Nation podcast network slash Pro Wrestling Only podcast network, and there are new ones continually coming. You can't stop the flow of new good podcasts (laughs) on the Place to Be Nation podcast network. And the one I'm going to plug that I listened to just a couple days ago while I was doing some packing is the pilot episode of The Royal Ramble, which is hosted by Stephen Graham, along with Tim Livingston and J.R. Goldberg. And this is an interesting podcast in the sense that there's only one episode, and they tell you to sync up if you want with the Royal Rumble they were watching. I believe it was the 90 or 91 Royal Rumble. And you think, oh, that's going to be like a director's commentary. But really what it turned out to be was just three friends like rambling about as true to true the title rambling about wrestling and particularly a lot of talk of modern indie wrestling and i really enjoyed it i thought it was really good as a one of those kind of fly on the wall podcasts where you can be doing something else it's almost like you're eavesdropping in on a conversation some friends are having in another room while you're stuck like cooking bagel bites for the party you're so naughty (laughs) Uh, Definitely leaving yes. that in. I'm the I am the naughtiest when it comes to listening to what my company is saying while I cook them delicious baked snacks. So yes, definitely, my ears are just roving. But the, the other thing that I'm definitely going to do is edit out the clip of you saying you can't stop the flow. 
<laughs> and probably probably making that the opening of the show. Okay. Um, so you can, um, if we want to do an old Joe versus the world Joe Gagne style soundboard, that would be a good clip for it. That'll be our "Will You Stop" by Gorilla Monsoon. But anyway, if you if you're interested in modern indie wrestling and just people that obviously know a fair bit and are keeping up with it, just talking about kind of the larger issues, I thought it was a really interesting conversation and made more, like, enjoyable by once in a while they'll just point out something weird happening in the rumble they're watching. So I, I really enjoyed it. There's only one episode. I think it's a little over an hour long. So unlike a lot of the great podcasts, including maybe this one, it's not quite of a titanic time commitment we're asking if you want to give that show a try. So I would suggest if you're interested in, if you sound interested in the topic, great show to try out, get it started off with some nice viewership from our mighty army of through the year fans. So because this show we're going to cover scramble madness for ring of honor is only a week after the previous show glory by honor. There's not a ton of between the show news. There's not a lot of between the sheets, wink, wink stuff going on. But I did have a couple points that I thought were interesting. And this one I'm going to start with. It's only tangentially related to Ring of Honor. But I had to make up an excuse to get it on because I was just so tickled by it. And this is more related to the Philly indie wrestling scene as a whole. But I'll read from the Observer here. On November 16th, Commissioner Greg Serb decreed that barbed wire and light tubes are are now banned within the state as is fighting outside the barricades and into the crowd. Serbs, if any wrestler was in the crowd while bleeding, they would pull the promoter's license. He also asked all promotions to cut back on excessive blood. This all stems from an incident at the August 31st XPW show in Philadelphia when wrestler Angel, who was bleeding, ended up in the women's bathroom and bled on the daughter of a local judge who was in attendance at the show. There was a complaint about excessive blood on that show as well, as excessive nudity during an angle involving promoter Rob Black's wife, the porn star who goes by the name Lizzie Borden. They also brought up the overuse of light tubes at November 9th, Zandig versus White Peter match, and the usage of a weed whacker. Historically, as the blood and blading issues of the past have shown, when it comes to commission enforcement of regulations on pro wrestling, as time goes by, they usually start falling by the wayside. Now, I just thought this was interesting because when we first started the show all those many years ago, uh, one of the stories on the first couple shows was Dave talking about how, like, oh, you know, the show almost got shut down because two people bled on it and, you know, how strict things were. And we thought it was kind of – seemed kind of fishy. And we've seen a lot of Blood and Ring of Honor shows since then. Yeah. But I I found it interesting, one, the very next show – I know for a fact we're going to see blood on that show, and that is a show in Philly. So maybe Dave, again, was being a little excessive, I mean, taking this too seriously, although even himself, he he mentions right at the end there that the history of commissions with wrestling shows that they might get a little angry once in a while, but it falls by the wayside. But I thought the other, I just thought it was so crazy that it seems like a lot of these commissions are just at the whims of one incident of one person, like if the wrong person gets offended, like the daughter of a judge going to an XPW show. Yeah. You can't, you can't bleed on a judge's daughter. 
Yeah. You can bleed on their you can bleed maybe on their son because you know of sexist double standards, but you can't bleed on their daughter. <laughs> and I also love the phrase um the overuse of light tubes, like uh, that being one of the su- re- things that pushed them over the line. Like, there's a good use of light tubes, but then there's an overuse. You know, four tubes or less, that's acceptable to judges. Five or more, eh, not so much. Yeah, so, fair enough. Definitely just a weird, one of those wacky things from wrestling. But the good news is, that's the last time any problems with commissions and indie wrestling and regulations would ever be an issue ever. Nothing like that happens ever again. No, definitely and not. There's no issues involving um, blood or uh, proclivities of owners or uh, overcrowding buildings uh, in the summertime or anything like that. <laughs> and before we get into trouble, the uh, one other b- major note was... This isn't a major note, but this is another story that it seems like when I read these observers to research for the shows in 2002, it feels like Ring of Honor is having an existential crisis through the observer because every month there is a story about Ring of Honor changing their mind about if they should keep their local Philadelphia TV show. So I almost want to just keep bringing it up because one day if someone could make a compilation of the number of times they equivocate through Dave about if they should do this, because here it says, regarding last week's note regarding Ring of Honor and its Philadelphia television, the decision has gone back and forth all week long. There, have been to- there has been talk of not wanting to be out of sight, out of mind, by not having TV in that market. There was a feeling that some of the new faces at the last show in Philadelphia may have been drawn off television, although they didn't do the video business from the TV show that they had hoped for. There is also the idea the money that's spent to buy TV would be more effective in the Boston market, which has less indie wrestling TV competition. They noted that the Wakefield show, that the matches were over, but the storylines weren't, since they don't have TV. So, um, it'd be I inter- don't know. It'd, it'd be interesting, though, like if like if they had done that, like they got rid of TV in Philadelphia and got put TV on in Boston, if the Philadelphia fans would like be upset by that. Yeah, and it's also interesting because, I mean, the Boston crowds, at least for these first two shows, are, if we're just going by reported numbers, are as good, if not a little bit better than the Philly crowds. So you would think, I mean, they're they're talking here about, oh, we need to maybe educate them to the storylines. But in terms of just drawing crowds, I mean, they're no worse off than Philly at this point. But it's probably Even, more expensive to run in Boston because they have to you know take their crew up there. Yeah, it's not their home base. That's a good point. So they would want to... You know, you'd want to even draw even more than that. And who knows what the difference is between the rent of the two buildings and whatever else they have to do. But I just love this because I think literally a week or two later in The Observer, they changed their mind again. And it's always Dave reporting it. So it must be just Gabe and Dave on a weekly or bi-weekly phone call. And every time, Gabe is probably just asking Dave, like, what do you think? Um, you know, is this a good idea? Well, this last show, maybe there was that guy in the corner looked like he might have watched the TV show. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just goes back and forth over and over again to the point where it just gets, like, probably only interesting if you're reading The Observers. but And also, like like we talked about, so inconsequential in the end because the show would be gone very soon and it really would have no effect on ROH going forward ever again. Mm-hmm. And they were taping, at least I think on some of these shows that they were about to, a few uh, kind of TV-exclusive squash matches. But 
yeah, they never again made it a real vital part of the show, which is understandable because it's a it's a tape product, and the TV was only in Philly, so it'd be kind of limiting to just do it for that. But I agree. There okay. was. And I want oh. to mention, because I forgot to say it a few minutes ago, because I was going to mention it, um, when you were talking about our the, our loyal listeners, we came up with a name for them. Um, and uh, they are, the, for everybody who, who loves uh, through the years, you are our deep vein thrombozos. And thrombo- <laughs> thrombozos is spelled T-H-R-O-H-M-B-O-Z-O-S. <laughs> deep vein thrombozos. Matt, Don't what it. have you done? Hashtag DV thrombozos. <laughs> One day we're going to have to have like a 150 character hashtag <laughs> or like 151 character, like just something. Well, I mean, it's already ridiculous. Hashtag, hashtag, if you're talking about this episode of the show. Dot com, period. Uh-huh. Spelled out, period. Um, all our, to all our DV thrombozos out there. <laughs> I want to hear you say it, man. Deep vein thrombosis. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, in related Philadelphia news, a lot of maneuvering is going on regarding the indie promotional wars in that city. XPW is attempting to get an exclusive lease to Viking Hall. Ring of Honor, when it got word this was being attempted, signed an exclusive lease on the nearby Murphy Rec Center, figuring that promotions kicked out of the Viking Hall would want to run there. So... Just this is just a, another little small tidbit where it's crazy that indie wrestling companies like the pickings are so slim that they're fighting over the rights to things like Viking Hall and the Murphy Rec Center. But I mean, that's where the Philly wrestling wars were at in 2002. I mean, what can you do? Yeah. But uh, just for people in the news talking about how hard it is to get good buildings for indie wrestling in 2017, I mean, it's always been hard. Wrestling's, you know, looked down on by some people. It's indie wrestling often isn't working on the best, biggest budget. And they don't make a lot of sorts of, you know, there's a lot of places that are made in cities for like concerts, for smaller concerts and stuff, bars and stuff. But there aren't a lot of venues made for low level sports like that, you know? And so you have to rent just gymnasiums and little like halls and stuff. And usually they're going to be shitty. And you were telling me the other day even about, you know, buildings you had been to for major indies like Ring of Honor where even if the building was average, it wasn't in the best part of town, should we say. You know, yeah. maybe not the place you feel safe parking necessarily. Yeah, or the place that's just – or it's just not close to public transportation and, they're, you know, you're not going to be able to really get something to eat, you know, right outside the building, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So there's always been corners cut and, and – I mean that doesn't justify everything, but it's it's been a – problem the entire modern indie era and the last tidbit before we get the show proper is apparently someone told dave that ring of honor's current plans include a bigger push for the tag team division which will be built around christopher daniels and donovan morgan and not so much Mm. don't spoil it don't spoil (laughs) that christopher daniels and donovan morgan don't become a legendary tag team yeah, I I know people like they are just waiting to watch the shows, not just these shows, but all wrestling shows as we cover this era. So after tonight's show, you can watch all wrestling up to November sixteenth, two thousand two. 
because that is the day that the show we are reviewing today, Scramble Madness, occurred in the AmeriCal Civic Center in Wakefield, Massachusetts. This was the second and final Ring of Honor show in the AmeriCal Civic Center. Um, they would return to Wakefield, Massachusetts, somewhere down the line, and they'd continue running Massachusetts, but not the AmeriCal Civic Center. And that was due to, according to this, um, the negative on Boston is that the building and the city of Wakefield are down on wrestling stemming from a lot of problems from the Billy Graham benefit show. And right now they don't want any more shows. Ring of Honor was told the problem wasn't them, but that might be until April or later before they'd be able to get back in. It's not you, it's me. We've all heard it. No one believes it. For those who don't know, the Billy Graham show was, I did some research just to remember what this was, when he was having one of his many health problems, a company wanted to do a benefit, Apparently, someone phoned a newspaper the day or two before and um, falsely told them that the show was canceled or something. And then I think um, uh, Brian Christopher showed up late, apparently, the promotion claimed, and then wanted money for a show he had previously agreed to work for free. I think Road Dog didn't show up at, at all. Wait a second. So somebody called up to get a benefit show falsely, say it's falsely canceled to sabotage it? That that is what um, the the promoters claim. They claim that and I guess there was an article in the newspaper saying, or some form of media saying it was canceled. Was it Hulk Hogan? <laughs> Someone who didn't like <laughs> Billy Graham. So I'm asking. Um, I'm not. I'm not accusing. I'm asking. I'm not saying Vince McMahon held a grudge, but but yeah, I I guess for some reason that soured Wakefield. They just didn't want to be involved in that drama, and that goes to the point we just made where. Wrestling has a lot of negative connotations and some bad things sometimes associated with it. And that's one of the things that makes it hard. You find a nice, fairly okay building like the AmeriCal Civic Center, and then some other promotion gets involved in some weird feud, and they don't want wrestling anymore. So it's unfortunate that that happens. The crowd for the show, Dave writes, was a packed house of 500 fans. But Dave also says later on, this crowd was a little smaller and noticeably less responsive than the crowd for the debut. I don't know how you can pack the house and um, also have fewer fans unless you oversold the show, which we know indie wrestling does not do ever, unless it was recently. But (laughs) going to the show itself. Starts off, we get a backstage promo. Christopher Daniels is backstage with the rest of the Prophecy, Simply Luscious, Xavier, and their hired gun, Samoa Joe. And Daniels brags that they're defending neither of the Ring of Honor titles tonight. And if he wins the Ring of Honor number one contenders trophy in his match against AJ Styles tonight, Xavier will never have to defend the Ring of Honor title ever again. Xavier cuts a brief promo on his opponent that night, Jeremy Lopez, mentioning how Lopez came all the way from Atlanta to wrestle tonight. Luscious jumps in and notes that Xavier lost his non-title match, his last one against Jay Briscoe. So they're kind of pushing this angle of simply Luscious is kind of getting on people's nerves in the stable. She's being a little mouthy and speaking up. Daniels goes, I know you're intelligent and beautiful, but keep your mouth shut. So very, very progressive uh, scene right there. Yeah, I was going to say that. It was so funny because it was so awkward. Like, you would never say to somebody that you're calling down, I know you're beautiful and intelligent, but could you please keep your mouth shut? I'll have to try that next time. Like, honey, you know I love you. 
you know I adore you, you brighten every day, but could you please knock it off? Um, well, that's actually kind of nice. Yeah, actually, yeah, I, I, I put <laughs> a little Knock it off is never going to be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I put a little too much mustard on the hot dog and suffered the uh, softened the blow a bit too much. Uh-huh. Um, Daniels gets on Samoa Joe for um, well, actually no, Joe's doing his usual thing. He's been doing for all these prophecy promos where he kind of makes goofy faces behind them, mocking them. He's not really into them. He's just their hired gun. Luscious tells Joe to stop shaking hands with wrestlers, and Joe reminds Daniels that he's just a hired gun, and he's fighting Homicide tonight to get revenge for his friend Steve Carino, who got stabbed by Homicide in the eye with a fork on the last show. And in a funny moment, (laughs) and in the funny moment at the end, he also mentions that Christopher Daniels forced him to wear a Curry Man T-shirt, which is pretty funny when you consider that Steve. I mean, Christopher Daniels is like this maniacal cult leader heel. The idea that he was also paying Samoa Joe money to wear a Curry Man T-shirt in addition to that character, I think that's pretty. That's pretty stomach warming, or. (laughs) <laughs> heartwarming i don't know okay. no no okay I, I, okay we got I mean, it you're, st- you're stomach warming like we're gonna go with I it uh, hashtag stomach warmers um um the, it, it, the, isn't, it, isn't it getting a little bit old now the whole samoa joe rolls his eyes in the back and says uh, that he just he wants to follow. i know it's only been three shows but we've gotten a lot of that already like i think we get it he doesn't want to be there he's a hired gun why is he even there for the promos it's probably one show too long i think they've been good about they started this angle right from the beginning when Joe came in. Like they always made it clear right from show one that Joe's just a hired gun and he's not really agreeing with what they're doing. But yeah, at some point it's the same thing every time where he's getting into a fight with Daniels. He's rolling his eyes. He walks away and Daniels is like, Oh, what's his problem? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And you know, that works to a point. And then you're starting to reach the point where you're going, Oh, it's a little too much. But this this segment actually ends with the Ring Crew Express barging in, and they say their catchphrase that they're the top tag team in Ring of Honor. Daniels has a nice little acting bit here where he pauses like he's going to be angry, then he cackles in laughter, then he immediately cuts back to anger and says Joe will destroy them tonight, and that basically ends the segment. Um, Daniels and Joe, I think, are clearly the top two promo guys so far in Ring of Honor. Um, uh, you know, Punk is in there at this point, although he's only worked one match and Carino is there, but I don't think they've gotten the chance to talk in this way yet, but I still really think Joe, even if the segments are getting a little bit old, he still is already kind of naturally charismatic and he doesn't feel forced, which I think is impressive. Yeah, he definitely doesn't feel forced. And I agree. He comes off like a star, um, very quickly, almost surprisingly so. Because I don't think he was really getting the same level of buzz that, like, a low-key or American Dragon uh, was getting in uh, in 2002. Um, and I uh, and you you see from watching this stuff, like, he's pretty all-around impressive at the time. So I, I'm I'm a little surprised because I, I don't really think because I wasn't following ROH in 2002, wasn't really following the Indies, and I definitely was hearing the names, you know, American Dragon. I'd seen Low Key, obviously, in in uh, in TNA, you know, AJ Styles, but I didn't really know anything about Samoa Joe, and I'm surprised that I didn't know anything about him considering how good he was already. 
Yeah, and um, I agree with that also because to support that, just he wasn't around for the first few Ring of Honor shows. And when you think of all the people they invited, and Daniels would even, I mean, Joe even said in the shoot interview that a few of his friends in the company kind of had to lean on Gabe a bit and keep recommending him and talk him into the idea that even though he'd be another fly-in from California, he'd be worth it. And even when Gabe brought him in, he initially made it sound like, uh, I can't promise you that you'll come in much, but you know, I want you to do the match you did against Low-Key at uh, King of Indies. So, yeah, he didn't have the reputation that a lot of these other guys like Daniels and Loki and Dragon had, where he still had to sell himself a little bit to even people you would think that would be somewhat in the know, like Gabe. So, but I mean, he comes in and he feels already like a talent. Like he doesn't, it doesn't feel like he needs time to ramp up. I mean, he will get better, but he's already very good, like within the standards of the company. Definitely. And next we have our usual technic techno music highlight video except matt for once after they do the overlay of the code of honor rules which was something they hadn't done on recent shows they then show highlights from shows that aren't this show yeah it's like they show highlights from all their past shows pretty much they they also show a highlight of colt cabana making an entrance which i think must be off the next show so but but credit to them for once they didn't spoil all the key spots that were happening on this show. So credit to, credit to them. I don't know if they'll stick with this, but for one show, they got their act together. Yeah, this is what they should be doing. And then the show starts in the ring. We, we cut to basically mid-sentence. Uh, Jay Briscoe's in the ring with Amazing Red, and J- Jay says he's been waiting since the last show in Wakefield to get his hands on his, quote, faggot brother, unquote, Mark. I'm glad you um, said the word and not me. Yeah, I, guess I mean, this is this is uh, keeping in the tradition of what we've uh, known about, uh, or things that have happened involving Jay Briscoe in the future. So, like, who, yeah, I was gonna say, who could have guessed that Jay Briscoe would say such a thing? Um, Mark comes out, and I'll note here: this is this was a dream tag match. This was booked as a dream partner tag match, where it was going to be Jay and a dream partner versus Mark and a dream partner that weren't announced. So. Jay chose Amazing Red, which makes sense because they've had two matches in Ring of Honor. They're one win apiece, so you can make an argument they probably earned a lot of respect with each other. And so when Mark comes out, he reveals that his dream partner is Christopher Daniels. And Gabe goes into dramatic oversell mode on commentary, like, he can't believe this. No, Mark, no. Um, Daniels makes the way to the ring side area, and... There's a funny moment where he grabs the mic and the PA guy doesn't know how to turn off his uh, theme. So Daniels has to give him like a death stare for a few seconds until the PA guy realizes that he has the mic in his hand and he wants to cut a promo. And then Daniel says he isn't Mark's dream partner. He's his master. And Mark gets on one knee and does this weird salute. Jay goes crazy. And then Mark attacks him to start the match. So this is Mark officially joining the Prophecy, which is a short-lived roster change for the group. And I have to say, I would have loved if there was a, like, Mark Briscoe's goes goth storyline, like the Southern boy goes goth and Jay gets outraged. I would have loved if Jay was just like, Mark, you like, you threw away your Hank Williams, the third CD. You're listening to this Bauhaus, like, Bella Lugosi's dead. What is this shit, Mark? Like, I think... You could have really had fun with that, but they, in general, they didn't really 
go for it with the prophecy in terms of the whole look of the gimmick. You know, it was just sort of like everyone was just themselves, only they didn't shake hands and they were mean. Yeah, it was window dressing. Even though Daniel's whole gimmick has the, you know, the creepy religion baiting, you know, evil preacher and he he's kind of doing the cult leader vibe. It's all very much on the outside. There it, it's like you said it doesn't really ever get played up on directly. Right, they don't really work that that aspect of it. Yeah. And so we go to the match itself, which is the prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Mark Briscoe taking on Jay Briscoe and the Amazing Red. And Daniels and Bris- Mark win in 1545 when Daniels pins Red after he hits the last rites. I thought this was the first completely pure kind of southern tag Ring of Honor ever had. Yeah, where I, I wrote the same thing, actually. It, it's interesting because I actually went back because the key to this is Red, it, it's a classic southern tag for people who don't know in the sense that they have a you know hot opening back and forth and then one of the baby faces gets isolated and the heel team just beats them, double teams them, tags in and out, teases the, got the face on the apron, all the heel tricks, and they just beat on them, beat on them, beat on them until the hot tag, then the other face runs wild, and then you go to whatever your finish is. But Ring of Honor had some elements of that in past matches, but never to this extent, especially with Ashley went back. Red was the face in peril, just taking a one-sided beating for eight minutes out of a 15-minute match. So eight minutes straight, I was just surprised they went that far. You won't see that in... um in modern indies very much like the the big work rate indies you won't even see that much in ring of honor 2002 so that was a pretty big surprise to me what did you think of the match as a whole though i appreciated the structure because you don't see it that often and i thought the beginning with mark and red like and their kind of counter wrestling and stuff like that i thought they both looked on like you know like they, that stuff was was hitting um, but I did think that the face and peril segment was just a little too long. I thought the match was a little bit too long. I don't think that the intensity or the heat was enough to sustain it for as long as it was. But I don't think anything was bad. Um, you know, I, uh, I thought some of the commentary was funny. Um, there was a part where, uh, Mark Briscoe was, like, choking, uh, Red over the, uh, over the middle rope, and, uh, Gabe was like, uh, Mark Briscoe would never have choked someone out before. And it was like, <laughs> I mean, he was definitely a heel the whole time. Like, literally the entire time. Like, like, you know, treating it like this big, like, heel turn is ridiculous. Because he's been a heel since the first show. Can we agree on this? Yes. Yeah, he's been a heel. And he was even a little bit dastardly against his brother in the first match that they had. It's only his second match in ROH, but still. I think, you know, that kind of softened the blow a little bit because of, of, of Mark joining the prophecy because he was already a heel. Um, but, you know, I thought, you know, the work was just, it was basic, it was good. They did a lot of neck work on, um, excuse me, on Red. Um, you know, Mark does this, like, cool stretch with, like, a boot on Red's neck. Um, you know, they're good, good double teams, um, I think, um, so, um, Mark hits a top rope ace crusher, um, on, on Red, Jay saves. A really cool spot, Red reversed a tilt-a-whirl into an inverted DDT, and then crawled to the wrong corner, which, uh, so, and then Mark powerbombed him, so that sort of, uh, you know, led to the, um, the face-in-peril segment, or the heat segment going, going longer and longer. Um, 
when Red finally tags Jay, um, the the pop is not exactly the hottest. I think you know when Dave mentioned about the uh, the crowd not being as hot as they were at the previous show, I did notice that. Definitely, they were a little bit quieter, but you know they were still into it. I I didn't get the sense that they didn't care, or didn't like it, or anything. Um, I, you know, and I thought you know it turned out to be a, a pretty good match. It was a little too long. I think if it was like twelve minutes, I think that would have been perfect. Um, what was it like eighteen minutes, something like that? Uh, fifteen, fifteen and change. It was almost sixteen minutes. So yeah, like yeah, like three or four match, uh, three or four minutes shorter. I think would have been best for the for the match. But I thought it was it was it was fine. Um. It was a perfectly fine match. I thought it was a good, solid tag match. I thought, I mean, there are openers. I think there's two kinds of openers you hope for, which are the show-stealing kind of opener that just gets a show off to with a huge bang. And then there's the good match that isn't shooting for the moon where you go, oh, that was good and satisfying. But clearly, it's not. other matches are going to be able to top it if this is going to be a good show. And, you know, they weren't trying to just do everything and 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 they weren't trying to steal the show, but they I think it was still enjoyable. Um, and like you said, I think it being old, more of an old fashioned tag was fun and was part of the fun of it. Even if the face and peril sequence did go on too long, I think if we had seen more of this in 2002 Ring of Honor, maybe it wouldn't be quite as novel, but we haven't. Um, I liked it that it was like you know it started the show immediately by having some big storyline advancement, you know. So it, so the Boston doesn't feel like those shows count less than the Philadelphia shows, you know. Like there 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 is always a risk when you have almost all your shows in one place, and then you kind of like do a detour to make it seem like the shows outside of your home base are like the house shows and everything else is the main show, and they didn't do that, you know. It, it, this show felt just as important as an average Philly show. And even if they weren't getting the TV and weren't following the tapes, I mean, they were kind of forced into this by the fact that Mark was only 17 and could only wrestle out of the Pennsylvania state. But, you know, it, it, there, if you if you were someone in Wakefield who had only had went to the last Wakefield show, there is that t- tie already for you where it's basically picking up the Mark J. Briscoe feud you already saw on the last Wakefield show. And that's how you're opening this show. You won the big matches is basically getting a tag rematch. And I've always heard that Gabe liked to do that where like, even though the storylines would continue throughout, there would also be continuity from between shows in one particular venue or another. Yeah. Or city, I should say. Definitely. You would see if a certain guy main evented, he'd be more apt to heavily feature that guy. Even if it wasn't, even if the train of the last few shows just around the country weren't going that way, I think sometimes he would he would want that consistency among cities. There's a match a little bit later that I'll talk about this again where it's almost like this match it seems like it only existed to wrap up a storyline that took place the last time they were in Boston. But I'll get to that. And I want to go back to what you said about the wrong tag. Um, the I thought that was a pretty crazy thing. I think it was a clear screw up by Red because really? I was I was watching a uh, there is to show you how many times AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels have uh, wrestled each other. In addition to their solo shoot interviews, they have a shoot interview which I actually recommend if you're interested in these two wrestlers. That is nothing but them together talking about all the matches and shows they've worked together, and 
that's how much of a history they have. And when they talk about this night, because they have a match against each other later, when they're trying to figure out what what uh, show and what match it was, they were. I think one of them goes, "Oh, that was the show where Red tagged the wrong Briscoe," and like they both start like laughing and stuff. And the way they refer to it makes it pretty clear that like um, this wasn't intentional. And I think if you watch the tape, like both the shoot and the match, you can tell Christopher Daniels is is like t- or is or someone is talking to Red. Like one of them was one of the people on the team was yelling at red, like, no, it's the wrong Briscoe. You know, you have to, I mean, you can't hear it and you can tell watching it. At least I could tell. And maybe it's easier. Cause I'd already heard the shoot interview, but like red does, does like another one or two spots and they reset, they put them in a position again to be able to make the hot tag. And it's crazy because the Briscoes were wearing different colored uniforms. One was wearing black with red trim. One was wearing red with black trim. And red had been spending a good portion of that match getting beat down in that corner. So the fact that he made that mistake, I thought was kind of crazy. Gabe tries to sell it as, you know, red's been friends with the Briscoes. So he's confused that, you know, he's not prepared for this. But so I thought that was weird, but entertaining in its own way. Just, a, again, a, a good standard tag match. Um, I thought Red and uh, Red and Jay did a move I could only describe as a heart attack flatliner that I thought was cool. I thought Jay killed Mark with a big boot early in the match. And I also thought that Christopher Daniels looked like a real good base for Red. Like, I feel like if you wanted to have gotten Red over when he was still a little bit green in 2002... A single speed with Daniels would have really helped because I feel like Daniels is kind of the perfect smooth base that could kind of take everything Red was doing and make sure it didn't get screwed up and make it look real good and just lead him through a match and, and know how to highlight his strengths. And rather than facing guys that maybe a lot of times Red was facing guys that were only on his level, I think I think that would have been a help, helpful, like only of his experience level. And but overall, I mean, just a good match. But not, I would say slightly above average. Well done. Yes. Well done, but a little bit boring. That's, that's yeah. How I, that's how I took it. I'm probably a little bit higher than you, but yeah, it, it's not going to be any match of the year lit on any list of that. Um, after the match, we uh, Mark and Daniels walk down the aisle where Mama and Papa Briscoe are. And Daniel says that he is Mark's family now, not Mama and Papa Briscoe. People rightfully praise Papa Briscoe's acting in wrestling skits, but I have to admit, I liked Mama Briscoe right here, covering her face in sadness at the revelation that her son had been joining this crazy cult that doesn't really act like a cult. She studied Helen Hart at the, at the Survivor Series 94. <laughs> This was a Helen Hart level performance. <laughs> plus, well, I mean that's actually shortchanging. I mean it wasn't much, but I did like that she actually tried to act a little. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. This begins a trend on the show, which is a lot of guys, or at least a few guys, wrestling more than once. Because you have uh, Red and Daniels will both be back in matches later, and Samoa Joe wrestles twice on this show. I guess maybe to make up for the fact that Low Key isn't on it. I'm not sure. We'll get into the, my theory about the Joe thing later. But obviously the Red and Daniels make sense because they were unannounced dream partners. So unless you want to 
book an extra two guys and then not be able to advertise them, two guys were going to have to pull double duty, I guess, using that logic. But it does lead to something weird in in a bit, which I'll talk about. But next we have, uh, we go backstage where Dixie and Joey Matthews and Izzy of Special K are talking about some being banged up, some injuries, and they're rejoicing that they only got charged for 12 pills instead of 15. Alexis Lurie storms in and wonders why Joey wasn't in her corner at Glory by Honor. She gets mad at him and storms away, says that they're through, so they're officially broken up in the show here. And later in on, inter- and later on um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, Gabe says that Christian York was so upset he didn't even want to come back to Ring of Honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a great way to write him out. I I love these ways that Gabe just like you know the Boogaloo thing where he'll keep mentioning that Boogaloo is out just from the beat down from the Carnage crew and that he's out of wrestling as a result. I I love I love these ways where Gabe as commentator slash Booker just dreams up to write these guys off. And obviously you have to do it, but it's just funny like 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 you said like just an offhand line where it's like Christian York you know he's so outraged I mean he's gone. And um, so then some new members of Special K show up, the first time we see them ever, and they attack a paper plate that had a... Do they have a salad on it or something? They like. I, I couldn't tell what it was. Someone's holding a paper plate that looks to have some kind of food, and I guess it's supposed to be like, ha they're druggies, they have the munchies. And they just start laughing and attacking the plate and taking food and shoving it in their mouths. And it looked like a salad, though, which doesn't <laughs> seem like munchy food. Like, yeah, you know, when you well, get they're stoned. Athletes. They're athlete uh, raver <laughs> munchy guys. You really want a crisp Waldorf. That's what really what satisfies the munchies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> next we go to... Alexis Lurie taking on and defeating Mace, who was escorted to the ring by Alice in Danger, via pinfall in 2 minutes 35 seconds after she hit a top rope uh, DDT. And speaking before I let... Well, actually, um, speaking, I was just going to say, speaking of Gabe um, write-offs, Gabe explains that Buffy has disappeared from Ring of Honor because he found someone hotter than Mace and as a result left him. So that's the quick one-line way to write off Buffy for a while, who would come back, but for now wasn't. And, I mean, I don't even know what, what to say about this match. I mean, it, I, can give, I can go over a couple spots. Um, okay. Uh, like when uh, Mace crawls over Alexis, L- Alexis Lurie and she grabs him by the balls, then she gives him an inverted atomic drop, then uh, hits a really sloppy top rope DDT for the win. Uh, other than that, this match was nothing. Um, you know, uh, she does the dive on the outside. Uh, Lovey says that Mace gave her the gay, quote, gayest clothesline he's ever seen. Um, you know, so it's just it was just more Christopher Street Connection bullshit. And then at the end... It, doesn't he say like, "Oh, this feud is over"? Like, yeah, th- that's another the other one thing. of those things. So it's just like they're trying to blow this off, but Alec- you know, just Alexis Lurie, they want her to be a big deal, and she has just looked completely unimpressive and uninteresting because she's been in this the whole time. So I, as, if I was a fan at this point, I would have no reason to think Alexis Lurie was anything special at all. Yeah, I mean, she comes off as more athletic than maybe some of the other women at the time, but the other women in Ring of Honor were simply luscious, and Alice in Danger, who looked at this point to be barely trained, so that, that that's not high company. 
I'll say this: the match and this and the segment was not as bad as the last Alexis Lurie segment, which was against Allison Danger at the last show. But that's damning with faint praise because almost anything, faintest of phrases. Yeah, almost anything would have been better than that. And like you said, the thing that really bugged me, other well, that's the main thing that bugged me, other than it not being a great match, was Gabe yelling right at the end. The feud is this feud is over. Where. How would the commentator know that? It's once again Gabe being, knowing too much as the commentator. Why, after just a, the end of a match that wasn't even a special match, would you instantly say the feud is over? I mean, it's just like how Gabe knows every injury that's going to happen the second it happens. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to think if he stops doing that later on, but I think maybe I'm not. not. Sure, but it, it's just. The other match, the Alexis Lurie Allison Danger match was so bad that I could see them do a ball grabbing spot here, and I was like, ah, this is a refreshing step up from last month. If they just sat there and ate a crisp Waldorf salad, I would give it at least a few more stars in that match. (laughs) But then they'd maybe be making lots of like mayonnaise based slash semen puns, probably because of the Christopher Street connection. But yeah, the the other thing is. Gabe is having to try and he keeps trying to do this thing where he's like she's hot but she's a great serious athlete like he, he's trying to sell both at the same time he's trying to please both sides of the audience and that, think, well, the thing that makes it I mean obviously that's stupid either way but it doesn't work at all when they don't show the great athlete part in any way shape or form exactly and the only part that was I think came through to the crowd tonight was on the show was when Allison Deidre came in and forcibly kissed Lurie. You did hear a bunch of men kind of do the wolf whistle and scream, yeah! So, I mean, there was a contingent of that crowd that just wanted to see women kiss people, other women, because Lord knows there's nowhere else you could see that happen. And <laughs> no, you definitely go to uh, local wrestling to see <laughs> some HLA in 2002. Yeah, I mean, you, you watch sweaty men grapple with each other for three hours because there might be a woman-on-woman kiss for five seconds. Mm. But uh, next we get a pre-recorded Steve Carino backstage promo. I didn't know. I don't know when they shot this because he wasn't on the show. It seems um, like it was shot at the previous show. Yeah, probably right after they shot the angle on the last show because his eye is all bandaged up from Homicide's fork attack at the end of the last show. He cuts an angry promo about his frustrations stemming from his very brief history in the ring and ring of honor so far. He talks about how he's going to take revenge on Homicide, but he won't be back in ring of honor for a long while because he's pissed off at them and he's going to Japan for zero one. Matt, I'll note that he was back five or six weeks later at final battle. So this is mid November. He's back in late December. And more importantly, and more importantly, two shows later. Yeah, exactly. He misses, he misses two shows from this knife attack. I did like that. I mean, he's a heel, so it makes sense to not sell it this way, but they didn't sell it like, Oh, his career's over or he's blind or something. They sold it just as, yeah, you heard him. He's going to come back for revenge. Just not yet. So it was a bit more realistic, at least. They didn't try and really make melodrama here, which I think wouldn't have worked. And next we got a non... Next we have a grammar, a non-title match. Xavier was simply luscious, taking on Jeremy Lopez. 
Xavier wins here by uh, pinfall in 10 minutes, 45 seconds after he hits a 450 splash. Matt, what did you think about this match? I know I've been harder on Xavier than you. I have a feeling I might be a little bit higher on this match than you. Yeah, um, well, first of all, it never stops being interesting to me that they decided so early to make the world title and the world champion such a mid-card thing. You know, I know this isn't a title match, but it's still the third match on the card. Uh, it's still against Jeremy Lopez, who had, be- who had barely appeared at all and isn't wasn't exactly like a top indie name at the time. You know what I mean? Like he was a good, you know, solid wrestler, but he wasn't like an indie star. So he, he had only wrestled one match in Ring of Honor so far, and he had lost it. Yeah. So he wasn't coming in hot. Yeah. So like Meltzer even commented in the Observer. Like, it's interesting that the number one contender's trophy is being fought over by the top stars, but the title is being fought over by Jay Briscoe, Xavier, and um, and Jeremy Lopez. Obviously, Jay Briscoe, uh, at the time, meant a lot less than he does now. Um, but it is interesting. It's also, I mean, not that Jeremy Lopez actually got a title shot, but still, it's weird. It's a weird choice. And I'm, I guess the idea is to show that the prophecy is trying to weaken ROH by weakening the title. But the title has not been established enough to be weakened. It has to be built up in the first place. That's I think exactly. That's the part that I just don't understand. Because you, because you see, you think of Gabe as like a you know somebody who kind of believes in that tradition of like you know t- things being taken seriously. But maybe he just wasn't all the way there yet. But all that being said, the match, uh, the crowd liked Lopez. Um, the match was the right length. Um, so I I I thought it was. It was pretty decent. I, I didn't think it was great, but I thought it, I thought it was you know among Xavier's better matches. Um, the storyline is that like they they don't defend the belts unless they have to. So if they don't have to defend the belt, they're not going to put the title online. And and I also like because that's why uh, so Daniels wasn't defending the tag team titles. I guess also Z- Xavier can't defend the title unless the guy has the number one contenders trophy. Isn't that right at this point? Yes. So that's another reason, but. Um, Early on, I thought it looked like the guys, they looked kind of so-so, the basic wrestling, but it got better. Um, uh, Xavier Ram Lopez back first into the post and then worked over the back. He kicked it, hit his torture rack slam. Then he went for like a one-foot cover, but Lopez grabbed him in an ankle lock, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, Xavier took back over quickly, though, hit a backbreaker. Um, they talked about how if Lopez wins, he could get a title shot on the next show. But that doesn't make any sense because the number one contender got the title shot in the next show, right? Yeah. So they, they, they were kind of forgetting their own little gimmick right there. Um, Lopez did a tornado DDT with Xavier's neck over the top rope and then missed the top rope or hit a top rope drop kick for two. Um, then Lopez hit a double underhook tornado DDT and then held on to it and hit a tiger driver. At this point, the crowd was really into Lopez. So they really did a good job. The fact that they could get the crowd into this match uh, was, is pretty impressive. Um, Xavier caught uh, Lopez on a cross body block, though, and hit a knee to the face, then a cobra cut suplex, and the crowd popped because Lopez kicked out of that. I think everyone thought that was the end. Then Lopez reversed the X-breaker and hit an elevated DDT for two. Um, and the crowd is at this point, it's like fully into the match. Like it's like a really like good and exciting match. And then Xavier hit these sloppy knees to the back and then the X breaker and hit the 450 for the three count. So I thought it turned into something pretty good, but it wasn't 
good enough to have been good the whole way through, I'd say, but, you know, I'd say it was a pleasant surprise, for sure. It was ent- it was an entertaining match, and it wasn't boring for the length and the fact that it was between Xavier and a guy that we'd barely seen before. Yeah, yeah, this is another match for me that I will call another damning with faint, faint praise match, where this exceeded my expectations, and I would call it only above average, like, not even like solidly good but it was it was above average but it was still more than the last like minute and a half was like legitimately good (laughs) yeah and i i thought xavier's offense other than as you mentioned for something that he throws in every match as a signature spot his jumping knees often look absolutely terrible and they really did here this is probably the worst they've looked so far but i felt like Xavier broke out some really good offense here. He's starting to throw the Cobra Clutch, clutch Suplex. That looks really good. Uh, this is, I think, the second or third show he's done it. He does a move which is almost like a mix of a TKO into a go-to-sleep in 2002 that I thought was cool. Um, the thing I thought was, a, I thought, again, this exceeded my expectations without being a great match. I thought it was above average. And as you mentioned, the crowd did buy into it as it went on, which is always a good sign of a match's quality. But the one thing I thought was a little weird was at some points in the body of the match, it almost felt like it was going to be a squash for Xavier. Like he was really dominating him, Jeremy Lopez. And then it felt in the last two or three minutes, they decided, well, we want to have back and forth big near falls because we want it to be a good match too. So it was kind of a weird mix of, like, there's parts of this match I could show a person isolated that would make you think, oh, the champ's just squashing a nobody in a non-title match. And then if I just show you the last minute or two, you might come away thinking, oh, they're trying to elevate Jeremy Lopez and make him look like he's on the level of a champ. But the fact that both were contained in a 10-minute match was a little bit weird, but I think it was probably just as simple as they wanted to have a hot finish to their match and entertain the crowd, which they did. I think that's perfectly fine. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm fine with the, actually that entire idea. Like we're going to have it most, mostly be a squash, but then we're going to have some exciting near falls at the end. I think that's probably the way to go. But going to what you said at the very start, I this Xavier stuff is so weird because on one hand, it seems like sometimes they're trying to push this idea that he's supposed to get heel heat because he's an undeserving champion. I've heard some people say, that he even that theorized that maybe he even tailored his work in this run to get people to react that way, like how he wrestled in the ring, that you know they're doing things like this, maybe putting him in these meaning not not very meaningful low card matches to draw heat in that sense. But at the same time, Dave and the Observer talk, clearly getting this from Gabe, and he would say this even in Observer's years after the fact when he referred back to this, would talk about how. Ring of Honor's faulty idea, like their mindset with Xavier, was that guys, and I've said this before, but I've read this multiple times, that guys like Daniels and Key and Dragon were so over they didn't need the title. But a guy like Xavier needed a title to get over. But as you said at the start of this match, the title hasn't been established. Like, there's nothing to gain. The title needed them. Yeah. A title is... It has to be invested in. You only get in fr- something from a title that you that you put into it. In other words, if you have ten champ, if you have nine champions, and you put and all those champions for this title were one of the top wrestlers in the company, then finally when you put it on a guy at Xavier's level, 
maybe it does give him a boost because you've invested in the title and people will think, well, the title was on all these great wrestlers. So if I was on the fence about Xavier, well, the title wouldn't go to a guy that wasn't another great wrestler, but this title, when Xavier won it, it was two or three months old. Loki had defended it one time. It barely existed, but yet from the sounds of it, they just expected that the idea of Xavier has the title will get him more over, even though it's a title that, almost wasn't there at this point i guess it did get him more over (laughs) (laughs) it got him it got him a reaction in a certain direction it pushed it further i don't know if it was good but yeah above average um that's about it yeah there was lopez took a couple nice bumps lopez looks like a perfectly serviceable wrestler you don't get to see a lot from I, i i don't think you can really make a judgment based on what we've seen from him but he took a, like a hard bump into the ring post. He took a pretty vicious-looking X-breaker, neck-breaker variation, but above average, not great. An, un- an unremarkable match, in yes. contrast with the next match, which was and a remarkable match. This is a match that got me pumped up, walking around, couldn't wait to talk about it with Matt, which we talked about on uh, Messenger. Can't wait to talk about it now. Tony Mamaluke and Matt Thompson taking on the hit squad of Mafia and Monster Mac. And the hit squad win here when Mafia pins Thompson after a burning hammer in 9 minutes, 50 seconds. This was this was something else. I, I don't even know where to start except with Matt Thompson. Yeah, Matt Thompson's where we start and where we end. M- Matt Thompson, Gabe describes him on commentary as a six foot eight high flyer who has wrestled four or five matches in his career so far. And I'll say he lives up to that description in every way, good and bad. He is a man with long hair. I don't know, you know, in wrestling you always have to doubt um, height figures, but whether he was 6'8 or not, he is clearly a very tall man, especially by the standards of 2002 indie wrestling. He is also very skinny for that height, pretty pale, long hair, and he looks green as grass. And he also looks like he has clear, clear athletic ability. He, um, at one point, he does like the the lion salt, the quebrada, but instead of jumping on the second middle rope like most people would do, he jumps all the way with a vertical leap to the top rope and moon salts off. And uh, this match, it, it was just so crazy. Where the story of this match was Matt Thompson. Um, Matt Thompson comes in early. He works a sequence where he does a couple noticeable kind of rough botchy moves. Um, at one point, I don't know if one of the hit squad got mad at him, but it looks like he got a clean clothesline, then botched a couple moves like a hip toss, and then they do another clothesline, where he clo- where one of the hit squad members clotheslines Thompson really hard, right in his face, the arm right in his face, he grabs it, he tags out, and Mama Luke wrestles most of the body of the match at that point, to the point where Gabe and Jeff Gorman on commentary start selling that Mama Luke has lost faith in Matt Thompson, and to the point that the crowd finally starts chanting, make the tag. And when they tag back in, this young gangly guy, he comes back in, and again, he does the quebrada, he does a big boot. He's just... You have to see Matt Thompson to believe him. He's just... He uh, we, like we were talking on Messenger, and I think you said or I said one of us said something like, "If he was in W, if he, if it was today, like WWE would snatch him up so quickly." A, a guy with this rough ability and that height. 
Yeah, I would. Yeah, that's what I. That's like you were wondering, like you know, what happened to Matt Thompson, and I said he definitely had to have stopped wrestling very shortly thereafter that because he would have been signed. He would have been signed like any as soon as anybody showed Vince McMahon this tape, he would have been signed. Wouldn't you agree? Or anybody in WWE because he was that tall. He did a quebrada. What else do you need to know? I mean, there were. I don't know if it was this period, but there was a period in WWE, you know, before the kind of indie revolution where. There was an edict given to John Laurinaitis when he ran talent relations or whatever that you you just look for guys six two or over. So I maybe, mean, maybe he w- he, maybe he was in developmental at some point or or at least under contract. I'd be uh, I'd be curious to find out. Looking online, I could find almost nothing about Matt Thompson. If you go to stuff like Cage Match, this is the only match documented from him in a database. Yeah. I did find a report from an NWA Wildside show. I think in the same month where he had wrestled a match, I think against Masada, and, but really, that's it. And I found a tweet from like a year ago where someone asked what happened to Matt Thompson based on this match, and no one had an answer. So, yeah, it, Which leads me to believe that he just like left the business like almost immediately. That's, that's my guess based on that amount of research. I mean, I'd be interested in even knowing the story of how Matt Thompson got on this card when he had four or five matches of experience. You yeah, know, well, like any wrestling promoter in the world sees a guy that tall who could do a top rope crossbody, top rope clothesline, cave rod off the top rope, and they're going to book him. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it doesn't matter if you're a super indie or anybody. It's just weird. Like, I wanted to go back in time watching this match and tell Matt Thompson, just stick it out. Like, you're 6'8", and you have natural athletic ability, even though you're really rough and really green. Like, it's hard to imagine that he couldn't have made something of himself. But you also never know, like, what is what happened in his personal life, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, whether family stuff, illnesses, you, like, we have no idea what happened to him. So it could have been anything. Like, don't get me wrong. Again, he's very, very green in this match. He looks rough in some spots. He's definitely not a good wrestler. He's just a super, like, raw talented guy yeah and and you could tell the crowd got behind him for that reason because they saw a little bit at the start i think they saw both kind of a little bit of his ability and how rough he was and then once they got the sense that they weren't going to see him again when mamaluk took up so much of the match they started chanting for him like he got over just based on a couple minutes you know at the start of the match this guy that had barely wrestled it's weird how much fun the uh announcers especially gabe made of him like made fun of his look you know, all this stuff, and it's just like, why are you being mean to this kid? Like, he's clearly trying his best, and he definitely made a good impression, I think, on the crowd. So, what, I, I, I would, I, you know, like, they were, they were praising him at some point, but they were also making fun of him pretty big time. And I would love to hear the backstory of that, if they were just being bullies, or if he did something to piss people off. It was weird, because... You know, Gabe must have seen the match, or at the very least, even if he was busy backstage, known what had happened and how it went. And yet here doing the announcing, it feels like on a spot-by-spot basis, he changes his opinion on Matt Thompson. Like, yeah. if he does a bad spot, he'll start making fun of him, like you said. And if he, that, But then if he does something really cool, he'll be like, oh, maybe this guy has potential after all. You know, it feels like he had, he's acting like he had never seen this match and had no idea what, like, even at the start of the match, he's saying, you know, if Mama Luke and Thompson win this, you know, maybe this could be a hot new tag team or something. And then, you know, minutes later when he's botching stuff, he's kind of burying Matt Thompson, and then he goes back to praising him. So, just a very, I think, the thing to say about this match is, 
it, it's not a good match. It's below average, but it's really entertaining. It's just so entertaining. It's such a weird experience to see this. It's something you don't see every day. And the, and perfect, I w- the perfect length, too. Exactly, and if and if you get the DVD or tape or download this through nefarious means, if you randomly decide that you're going to get a DVD in 2017 of ROH Scramble Madness 2002, but but if you do and you think, oh, I just want to see like the top two or three matches, no, like no, I'm going to hit you on the head with a rolled up newspaper. You make time to watch this match. Don't skip this one. You want pick and choose. Fine, do not skip this match. It is worth watching. It's not a good match. It's an entertaining way to spend 10 minutes or less. If I'm going to pick three matches to watch from this show, this is one of them. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's. I'll say this. I will never forget this match now. I can't believe I didn't remember it before. I'm going to promise myself and you, I'm never going to forget it now. I definitely like. I definitely have never seen it before. Like I've had this DVD, but I guess this is just a show that I never watched from beginning to end. Because I, I, I just skipped it. I've never seen this before. I've never heard of Matt Thompson before. So this was a very pleasant surprise for me. Uh, another thing about the match, just... Uh, so, Tony Mamaluke is still in his FBI trunks. And, and the reason <laughs> is because uh, the announcers say he's waiting for the new tights to be delivered. <laughs> so that's he still the, other, the FBI. Like, that's the other crazy thing. Not that Tony Mamaluke has knocked them dead in Ring of Honor in 2002. Because he certainly hasn't. But... He wins this big extended feud with James Maritato. The feud ends with him saying, you know, finally saying, okay, I'm going to give up the FBI gimmick. And then his next match that we see him after winning that feud is an undercard match tagging with a guy who's barely wrestled, losing, wearing his FBI gear. (laughs) Like, it's just so ridiculous. Like, if it was a wrestler, I actually was really behind in 2002 Ring of Honor, and this is how they followed up a, a feud he won, like, I'd be pretty aggravated. Instead, it's just it's just hilarious that it's like, it, it's a couple months later, and he's still wearing the FBI gear. <laughs> when the feud ended with him being like, yeah, you're right, I don't need this FBI stuff. Yeah, it's actually only a month later when you think about it, but still, you're right. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's uh, also f- um, funny, Matt Thompson, in his 34th match, Took a burning hammer. That was the finish of the match. A six and foot eight God. guy taking a burning hammer. Like I know in I wrestling, know, everybody. Yeah, I don't know if I would feel comfortable doing that as a fourth or fifth, whatever match level experience kid. Yes. But I mean, he looked like he survived it. <laughs> Again, he looks like he looks like Bambi. He looks like a guy who hasn't grown into his feet yet. He looks just a little bit shy and awkward, but he has these flashes of natural great agility. Flashes of brilliance. Yeah. Just, just kidding. And, yeah, I wouldn't say brilliance, but th- there's something charming about him that clearly the cl- crowd saw that too. But next, we're going to go Wait, into before, something... Before we go on, oh, if, go. if you can put us in touch with Matt Thompson in any way, tweet us at hashtag Matt tweet Matt. <laughs> Deep vape thrombosis. Um, thrombosos. Go. <laughs> but yeah, if anyone knows what happened to, we'll have a uh, contact information at the end of the show. I forgot last episode, but if anyone knows anything about Matt Thompson, jump to the end, get that information, contact us. I'm just curious. I want to know what happened to him. Yeah. Hashtag DV thrombosos. Hashtag Matt tweet Matt. Hashtag water wallies. Uh-huh. Um, next we have the scramble match. Uh, 
another of the long-running series of scrambles. And it is the Amazing Red and the SAT of Joel and Jose Maximo and Divine Storm of Chris Divine and Quiet Storm defeating Special K of Izzy, Deranged, Angel Dust, Joey Matthews, and Slim J in 17 minutes, 45 seconds when Red pins Angel Dust after hitting the infrared. Matt, I think it's your turn, but I know before you talked about how you might need my help keeping up with all the big spots, so... Before we get into the opinions of the match, I'm just going to tell the people some of the huge spots in this match. Okay. Well, there, first of all, let me just let me just say some before you start this. I'm I was very excited at the beginning that we got to meet so many of our old friends all at the same time with with the Angel Dust and Deranged and Slim J, just all popping up all at once in a backstage segment. Very excited. It's you know it's like a warm blanket remembering those guys. <laughs> yeah. Let's note that this is um. Other than Joey Matthews and Izzy, everybody on the Special K team is making their Ring of Honor debut. So Angel Dust, Deranged, and Slim J all making their debut in the same match. Essentially like more than doubling the size of the stable in one night. Yes. And um, because I think Dixie's at ringside too, I think. Yeah, yes, he is. So yeah, because he's still hurt from hurting his leg at the last show. So this is a match where I I wrote in my notes... This is like ordering a pizza online and you just press the extra cheese button until they tell you you can't put any more cheese on it. There was just It was just so excessive in the best ways. What I loved is they did so many spots that were, that were made use of the sheer number of people they had. So some of the big spots include all five members of um, the face. No, I think of Special K diving on all five people of the face team where three of them did stereo dives, topes through the ropes while two of them simultaneously did springboards off the top rope. So it was a five on five dive. There was a quadruple top rope power bomb where it was, and it was all four of the guys doing the power bomb where you jump with your face facing out to the crowd. So you're kind of having to do a backwards jump, which I think is always more impressive and kind of crazier. Um, they did a spot where Special K did a four-on-one drop kick, except Angel Dust hits his drop kick so much later than the other three Special K guys that he completely hits air and lands on the guy uh, on the guy who's already selling the other three drop kicks. And Gabe starts laughing on commentary. Um, what else? Let me just see. Um, blah, 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 blah. There was the Maximos. Uh, it's also weird. This was a crazy, crazy spot fest, like the biggest spot fest Ring of Honor had done us to this point. And it starts with one of the Maximos and Deranged doing an extended um, mat wrestling sequence. Yes. And then, and then after that, it gets insane for the whole rest of the way. But it's funny, that's how they started the match. Um, just the last one thing of my, One get... of my favorite spots was oh, go on. where everyone was on the top rope except for Joey Matthews and Red. Red does a dive over the top onto Joey, and then all the other baby faces do power bombs at the same time backwards into the ring on all the other members of Special K. Yeah, that that was yeah, that's the power bomb song I was talking about. That was great. Um Joel Maximo hits four ma- power bombs in a row on somebody into the Maximo explosion. Um Quiet Storm hits his usual spinal shock, and Gabe gets real indignant. Like Victoria might use it in WWE, but Quiet Storm invented it. So like that's the widow's take, peak. Yeah, yeah, take that, Victoria. Like 
of all the people and moves to call out, like you're going to call out Victoria for stealing the Quiet Storms, not even his finisher, but his signature move. Well, she was so new that nobody had that soft spot for her just yet. But, I mean, we've kind of, I'm kind of been all over the place on this, but. Yeah, yeah, we're not in order, but we're just, yeah, throwing out. Uh, the, one of my favorite things was some of the commentary, because so you know how uh, Gabe always does the whole, these Special K guys, you know, they, they just live off their parents' money, and they party, and they with raves, and they have so much talent, but they just waste it. And then right after that, he goes, Slim J is a can't-miss superstar. And I'm like, even with all the drugs and all the things that you're saying he's doing, he can't miss? <laughs> like, and, I, I, I just thought, like, are you sure? This is also one of the first times in my life I felt early 2000s nostalgia, or like, not nostalgia, but how it's been dated, because Slim J at this point is wearing the wife beater and has the short, dyed blonde hair, and Jeff Gorman and Gabe are just making a bunch of Eminem references with him, and I just, it was like the first time in my life I was like, man, that was a while ago, wasn't it? Like, the birth of Eminem, and just to hear them just harp on that, like, oh, Slim J is obviously looking like Eminem and the name Slim J even. And, but I mean, I don't know. It's hard to get into the thoughts when we've just said so much of the moves, but I thought this was by far the best spot fest, the best scramble match ring of honor has done thus far, like by a considerable margin. Yes, I, I would say so. It just, the crowd reactions, the pacing, the way the spots connected, the way the characters or the wrestlers kind of got their characters across in the match, it made it the most fun. It wasn't bland. It was exciting. I thought, you know, it would hold up pretty well if it happened now. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think all those things added together, I think, mean, yeah, I would agree with you. It, it was it was the best. I, I feel like I want my scramble matches to be really crazy and and ambitious and lots of high flying and but also for the stuff to flow and, and not a lot of awkward standing around yeah. and the stuff to hit and this was you know after that opening mat work sequence very fast paced a lot of really cool stuff that i do think would hold up in terms of just there are a ton of really cool spots here i don't even see today like the five on five dives and some of the stuff they did where if you put that stuff in a bola match in 2017 it would get a big reaction I think the difference between these kinds of matches and 2017 spot fests are the wrestlers nowadays are a lot more polished in how they do the individual moves. Not that people were botching much in this match, but I just feel like the level of polish and also the strikes. maybe yeah, and guys like even the Young Bucks, I think are good at injecting character into their matches. I feel like the only guy that was really injecting character into this match was Joey Matthews. I thought Deranged did, for sure. I thought Joey Matthews did good at playing the role of, like, he leaned into the idea that he was the guy that was kind of out of his element, where he would just grab, at one point, he grabbed a headlock and wouldn't let go in the middle of this crazy spot fest. Or there's another sequence where the faces had just hit a bunch of crazy stuff, and he comes in and low blows them all. And Gabe keeps making references like, hey, does Joey Matthews think this is Memphis? Like, why is he grabbing headlocks? But it was purposely done. Like, yeah, that's, to good, be that's this- good character stuff. Yeah, exactly. But I will say, I'd say there are three guys in this whole crew that can get across their character. Joey, Deranged, and um, Quiet Storm. Uh, the, everyone else is just sort of a guy. 
Um, you know, Slim J, I couldn't tell you anything about him as a person. He's just another uh, spot guy that everyone at the time seemed to think was like the best guy. Uh, I guess he never quite lived up to that potential, at least in ROH. I know Slim J still gets praise from people like working Southern Indies to this day. Like he still wrestles to this day, I think under a different name. Like I forget if it's like Gladiator Jeremiah or something like that, but mm-hmm. he, he still wrestles to this day, even though if he never really made it on this scene. I guess time's not up for him because he was probably pretty young, so he's probably only like in his early to mid thirties now. Yeah. But um but yeah, I th- so I thought but I, I do think that Deranged and Quiet Storm also show their character to a good degree. There was a spot where uh Red did a clothesline on Slim J and Slim did like a full flip and it's just like eh I don't know if you should really do a flip on a red clothesline. <laughs> it's probably not the guy to be doing the flip on. Yeah, he Slim J was bumping real big here, regardless of what the move was or who who was giving it. I felt like he just wanted to bump his move as much as he could on bumps. In a match like this, I guess you can't really fault a guy for doing that. Yeah, um, I just I, it was interesting. Gabe also got on his soapbox a little in this match. He must have been pretty sensitive to uh, to online criticism. Well, I definitely know he was because one, I just know what Gabe's like from re- years of reading and watching, but also there was a couple of shows already where he would be like, careful, Jeff, if you don't like say the move right or something, the people on the message boards will get angry at you. So you can tell he's sensitive about stuff like that. And here he's sensitive about something else where he gets on his soapbox and he starts criticizing people who knock these scramble matches for being spot fests. He talks about how this is an art form for these wrestlers and like, a place to show off what they can do. He kind of knocks Lucha in comparison. And that's something that was always something. Some people online would get mad at Gabe for that. It seemed like Gabe had this big blind spot where he just didn't get Lucha and was hesitant to book guys of that style in ring of honor. But so it was kind of interesting that even in 2002, you catch him kind of knocking Lucha and praising um, the scramble match. But this was just, they, they, Everything about this match, I would describe it as just more compared to the other scrambles matches so far. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, I didn't say anything. Oh, I, I, you, something must have cut in for a while ago. Anyway, um, there was just more big spots. It was a longer match. It was more guys in the ring, more guys doing things simultaneously. They were taking even bigger risks. It was just everything was just more in a good way. I felt like although. In a few shows, we're going to talk about how they might have overlearned this lesson. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I don't know. Like I, they, we'll have to see as we keep rewatching the shows if they ever get to this point again. But I feel like this is the match where they definitely keep aiming to recreate this match. And I'm talking about a very specific match uh, that does so in a very unsuccessful way. <laughs> but we're a few shows away from that. But so we'll see if they ever hit that target again. But obviously, this match it got the I think the best crowd reaction of anything on the show. It obviously did so well. They named the show after the match, Scramble Madness, and I think it deserved it. I, I think this was it's just a crazy, um, mindless brain candy spot fest. By far the best they had done so far. And I do, this, and I do appreciate like that as an art form. By the way, I I I do too. I I like lots of kinds of wrestling if it's done well, and I think. This was that kind of match done well, and, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say, but, like, oh, I was going to say, if there's a, like, a clearly way better 
2002 spot fest in U- U.S. indie wrestling, like there might be a better match, but there's something that blows this away. I want to see it because I have a feeling like in terms of this kind of match, this was probably right on the cutting edge at the time. I feel like. Yeah, I would. I would say so. That's why these and, guys. These guys were like indie stars at the time. It was because they could do stuff like this. And the other thing to note is going to the Observer. I think this is something Dave was wrong about because Dave writes. Slim J from NWA Wildside ended up in the hospital. There was a four-way powerbomb off the top rope spot, and Slim J, who was only 17, which is why he can't be used in Pennsylvania yet, hit his head in landing and also got potatoed by an infrared by Red. He was knocked cold, but didn't have a concussion. So I'll note that the end of this, I didn't see anyone get hurt on the four-way powerbomb, but what I did see was... Red knocking somebody out clearly, but that was Angel Dust, who he finished the match. He hit the infrared on him. And when you watch it, you can clearly see Angel Dust gets knocked the fuck out. Like, guys are panicking and jumping at ringside, trying to, like, drag him up and talk to him. He seems dazed and at first a little bit, at first motionless for a few seconds. And I've got to say, Red, like, get another match. I mean, I know I keep harping on this, but another match where he hits the infrared and he just can't seem to control where it lands or how hard it lands. You know, he had just wrestled the match against Akuto Hodaka where he crushed that guy's face and it was instantly swelling up and had a cut on it. And here he does it again, does the same move, crushes, you know, Angel Dust, knocks him out cold with it. And if you can't hit your finisher 99% of the time safely, it shouldn't be your finisher. I mean, I'm sorry. Well, it's especially, just, it if you can't, well, and especially if you can't do it like 50% of the time safely. Yeah, because even the times when he's not hitting people, there's also, I would say, half the time it either misses the guy completely or just he lands on their legs hard. Or it's He does the rotations well, and it's a beautiful move. But it seems like he can just barely do the rotations and he can't control his landing or his positioning at all. It's it's all he can do just to rotate in the air. And yeah, that's I like, not I enough. Like, I like Red, but that move was not what he should have been doing. Yeah. So, Red... 2002 Red, knock it off. The, the other thing don't I'll mention... Don't make me come back there, literally. <laughs> don't, let, don't make me get in the machine. But, um... <laughs> I'll... I'll I think one other thing I was just going to mention we a, where... We have a great drop word for you just f- just from today. <laughs> I'm just creating the drops. Uh, but that's not <laughs> enough. Um, but Don't I'll make also me get in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you, like... Uh, one thing I, I, I... I mean, I knew this before, but looking back on it, it's crazy how in the old days, the top high flyers and spot guys on the indies were more like the special K Jack Evans where they were skinny shrimpy guys. They didn't always have gear. You wouldn't really think they looked like wrestlers, but they could do these amazing, amazing high flying spots. And nowadays it feels like there's hardly any of those guys. It's more anyone that's the big high flyer looks more like Matt Seidel than Jack Evans. You know, they look like they hit the gym a ton. Maybe Maybe on the smaller indies, they still have guys like that. Maybe, but I, in a way, it's better, but I kind of miss just the guy who looks like he'd be the kid that got picked on in your class who turns out to be just this amazing flyer. You know, it seems like we have way more ricochets in terms of body types than Jack Evans or uh, Izzy now. I completely agree, because it was, it was a big criticism I had at WWE for years that all the guys looked the same. 
right? And then over the past few years, they've started to, you know, have the Bray Wyatt's come back in, Samoa Joe, you know, different types of guys looking different ways. Indie wrestling now is doing what WWE did back then. Everybody kind of has the same look, you know, very sleek, very athletic. You know, we, we I, I like that it's a could be the island of misfit toys a little bit. I don't want to have to go to like a deathmatch tournament to see interesting looking guys. And also, a lot of high flyers are naturally under. Sorry to interrupt. Are naturally underdogs. It's a bit. It takes away a bit of the underdog when you look like I could never look in a million years. Like when you have just this gorgeous, succulent, get in the machine level body. It's a simply, and, <laughs> it's a simply luscious <laughs> kind of body. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it just, you know, what. What what I I naturally feel sympathy for Jack Evans when I see him get beat down. When I although see, when you hear about his politics, I don't know. <laughs> but when I see like Neville get beat down when he was a face, like that guy has a body like a Greek god, you know, and it's it's going to cut a bit of your natural instincts to feel sympathy. Right. Exactly. I completely agree. And also, it's just fun to have like a geeky looking guys do cool stuff like that's what makes indie wrestling non-corporate wrestling like you you could just look shitty and it's cool yeah and, and it especially worked for special k because they were supposed to just be crazy like dare junkie raver kids you know they, did, you, did, it you just, did you just make up that term dare junkie <laughs> you know that that's a uh, pj black's next gimmick the dare junkie oh got it that, that's that's when someone else copyrights Dare Wolf. He has to be the Dare Junkie, uh-huh. the Dare Addict. Um, <laughs> oh God! Close the drop board. <laughs> it's over. Um, yeah. So, Matt, do you have anything else to say? We've talked quite a bit about this match. Oh wait, I forgot one thing before I. No, you you talk first. Well, I, I pretty we pretty much said everything. Like I said, it, it's good that we gave that much time to it because it is what the show is named after. It's a very memorable deal. And I think it leads again to them just continuing to try to reach it again. You know, they're chasing the they're chasing the the dragon. Uh, they're chasing the dragon, Trevor. Yeah, yeah. It's an like um, like um, they're they're junkies. Right, and uh, riding the snake. <laughs> the snake, that old Jim Carrey SNL skit. <laughs> where literally, was that that is literally what I was referencing. So good call. Ride the snake. Yeah. But um. I was going to say there's one incredible bit of commentary from this. I know it, it's not, it, I'm, I know I'm hyping this up too much, but I have to admit, I, this just tickled me pink in my warm belly, but it's, um, G- Gabe on commentary at one point, he, he, he's doing the same thing he's done the last show or two where he's trying to sell, sell 25 year old Joey Matthews as, you know, an old man trying to relive his youth, hang out with these young special K guys. And he go, Gabe goes, and I quote, a 25-year-old hanging out with a bunch of 18-year-old kids? Can't you go to jail for that? And if I had been drinking something when I was watching it at that point, I would have spit it out because maybe Gabe is the guy who got in the machine and went back to almost warn us in the future to drop hints about something that allegedly might have happened, don't sue us, that we'll talk about in two years worth of shows down the line. But one thing that he didn't warn us about, great segue, is Samoa Joe taking on and defeating the Ring Crew Express of Dun & Marcos. It would have been weird if he'd warned us about that. There's going to be a perfectly standard squash coming up. Just five minutes now. Joe's going to (laughs) win. And yes, Joe won won in a a minute 50 seconds when he pins Dunn after hitting the island driver. 
not so, much to say. So I do I have to do I get to recap the next squash match too? Uh, no, I'll let you recap the next match because this is almost nothing. It's literally um, Joe squashes them for a minute, 50 seconds. The only thing I even remember from it was Marcos had his T-shirt pulled over his head and took like 30 seconds of spots, including running the ropes with the shirt pulled <laughs> over his head, which it's I thought was it's fun. It's a blindfold match. All right, here's the thing I want to ask you about this. Do you f- remember on the first Wakefield show, Honor Invades Boston, where they had Loki come out before his main event, like way early in the show, and they had him take on Chris Devine in an impromptu match and squash him, and then th- they had him come back out for the main event, and we wondered why. Right. Do you think Joe was almost the same thing? Because Joe was not in Ring of Honor for the first Wakefield show. So do you think maybe Gay was like, we have to establish Joe before he has a serious match that night. Like just I mean, a few I don't, minutes before his serious match. Seems, yeah, I, I, seems I don't weird. know why else would you do that. Like, why? Why is there a need for him to squash the Ring Crew Express when he is going to have a match? Like you said, not very long later. I guess that is the only reason possible. So I guess I guess you're right. But still, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessary. But I mean, just a squash. I don't. Do you have anything to say about it? Um, no. <laughs> okay, but you will have things. I will force you to say things about right. the next match. All right, Joe looked like a star. I'll say that in fifteen yes. years. Maybe in fifteen years, maybe he can main event SummerSlam. <laughs> it's crazy that finally, like, we're getting this Joe Renaissance as we cover the start of his of his big indie career. It, it's yeah. it's a weird confluence of events happening. It's freaking ridiculous that it took this long. I'm happy for him. Like it, no, it's me honestly too. Me too. a little bit too late where he's a little bit broken down, but he's still doing great. And his character stuff is just as good as ever. Yeah. He's one of those guys where his body isn't doing everything it used to do, but he's so smart. He can make up for that. Like yeah. he can carry himself in ways where he can negate that. But um, next up is a street fight. This is the blow off for the Paul London, Michael Shane feud. And this is Paul London and Rudy Boy Gonzalez in a street fight, defeating Michael Shane and Biohazard in 14 minutes, 20 seconds, when London and Rudy Boy pinned Biohazard together after a combo of a Rudy Boy powerbomb followed by a running shooting star press by Paul London. Matt, what did you think of as this is the way they ended the Paul London-Michael Shane feud? Well, first, the very first thing that I wrote um, when I when I found out this match was happening was more of this because it really felt like this should have been it should have been done and this is my this I feel like the only reason they had this is so they because they felt like this feud sort of started at the last Boston show so they have to wrap it up at this one otherwise I feel like that this feud's been done right like it's it just seemed like everything was blown off but um, you know the idea of like Rudy Boy wrestling again I mean I guess there are a couple things that he does that are kind of cool um he like uh well, which i'll get to but mostly he looks very clumsy i don't know did you, do you think that he looked mostly clumsy in general he he's weird where it's clear he has surprisingly good athleticism and and i would just describe it as jump for a guy who's shaped like a human ball like a human beach ball he's just stout and round and thick not necessarily i mean he's overweight but not i wouldn't describe it as just as fat he's just a stout big round guy and 
he can do like a good super kick. He can really run when he has to run the ropes and speed, but then he'll like do a really bad looking baseball slide. Yeah, exactly. Um, the way they start is like Rudy and Biohazard are fighting on the outside. So it's like, imagine this ROH pure wrestling, Rudy Boy Gonzalez and Biohazard are having a brawl. Um, by the way, Biohazard, he got a lot more work in ROH early than I remembered, but, um, you know, I guess it was, didn't really last much longer than this, but this feud was basically his gravy train. Yeah. Yeah. Um, London and Shane paired off in the ring at a certain point, pretty early in the match, there was like a five second uninterrupted shot of an empty ring with nothing else (laughs) going on. So, and this is like edited in post-production. So I guess that must mean that the other camera also was not catching anything or else they would have had to cut away. They would have cut away from the empty ring. Did you notice this? Uh, I, I don't know if I noticed this much, but like you saying it for some reason is like, like, Oh my God. I, I noticed that, um, in the other matches, like the, some of the carnage crew brawls where it was tornado rules, it seemed like the more they would just pick who they thought were the two most, the most exciting brawl of the two brawls and stick with that most of the way. It seemed like this one, they were cutting back and forth between the guys quite a lot, yeah. which was almost disorienting. I felt. Yeah. There was one point where Rudy was like wrestling Shane in the ring and he does like the weirdest looking tarantula, but like weirder than the actual tarantula itself was Rudy getting into position for the tarantula. Cause it was like a mix of like very awkwardly jumping, but also almost like tripping over the top rope to get into the tarantula position. It was just, I don't know. It just, it just wasn't a good look. Um, but then, uh, Shane, uh, DDT'd him on the guardrail, uh, which was laid out on the floor, and Rudy started. Rudy bladed, and Shane started biting Rudy Boy's cut, which I guess is old school. Um, Biohazard did kind of a cool uh, Death Valley driver on London, and Lovey keeps talking about how Biohazard isn't smart. Like that's his like his whole shtick with Biohazard. Like he's not the smartest guy <laughs> to the point where actually Gorman's like, "What do you? Why do you keep talking about why he's not smart?" <laughs> And he's done this. This isn't the first show he's done that. Like, I don't know if there was something about Biohazard that pissed him off, but on a couple of these shows, he keeps going about how stupid Biohazard is. I mean, I guess like there's there's like ribbing involved, um, but you know, so you never not every time he does this could it be necessarily mean spirited, but it just well, definitely comes off weird. Well, Gabe has continued to rib him then by not booking him for over a decade. Yeah, so it's a good extended rib. No. um... Don't you know that that Biohazard is? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a funny uh, person to say Biohazard. Roderick Strong. <laughs> there you go. Booked him for a long time after that. Um, oh, I love his work in NXT right now. Yeah, Biohazard. Yeah. Um, but um, so London takes a takes a ladder. He bridges it between the ring and the guardrail. He goes for a shooting star press off the ladder, but. Biohazard kicks it and crotches London. And actually, in the Observer, it said that London like crotched himself. But I'm pretty sure this was a planned spot. Uh, See, I don't know if this is the spot he's talking about because I'll I'll just go quickly to the quote in the Observer where it says Paul London tried to emulate the running up the ladder into a flip dive spot, but slipped and ended up crotching himself. Now, I was going to ask you later this. Um, do you, do you think it's a, it's a spot they edited off the DVD because I'll note this, there's a tables, ladders, a ladder and chairs of this match, but the ladder only comes into play in the spot you just mentioned. And then later on, Paul London puts the ladder leaning up against one of the turnbuckles. 
So you could do the spot he did famously at Unscripted where you run up the ladder, it's leaning against a corner, you jump off and do a flip dive into the, like, the, the, the aisle way, and it, the, the ladder gets set up there and nothing gets done with it for the rest of the match. You never see anyone use the ladder, but yet they purposely put it against the turnbuckle. So I'm wondering, did Dave, was Dave misinterpreting some report about the spot you just said? Or is it possible that London really did try and do the flip dive spot again and screwed it up to the point where they edited it off the DVD? Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I guess we'll never know, right? Unless, I mean, yeah. we got to ask Joe Gagne. Maybe yeah. he'll remember. I mean, if you can really remember that's a random spot from 15 years ago, maybe he'll know. Um, um, but we'll, I guess we'll try to find that out. Um, meanwhile, uh, Rudy knocks Shane off the top, uh, threw, a, threw a table on the floor, and then he sort of, he fisherman, he gets fisherman suplex on a ladder by Biohazard. So Rudy's taking some big bumps here. Um, Rudy's on the ladder, and Biohazard hits a swanton onto him. So, like, he's lying on the ladder. Uh, Shane goes for a shooting star, or excuse me, London goes for a shooting star press off the top on Biohazard, but Shane crotches him. Rudy super kicks Shane. London hits the shooting star press, but Shane kicks out. So they're still protecting Shane. Um, that's where the match breaks down. Um, and they try to, fin- try to figure out, like, it, it was almost so awkward that it looked like a botch finish. Like, it looked like maybe Shane wasn't supposed to kick out or something like that, but... The way the finish went, it seems like that wasn't the case. But there was a lot of awkward standing around. So maybe there was there was something edited out that caused some confusion. But um, So Shane super kicked Rudy for two. Rudy powerbomb Biohazard off the top. And London hit a running shooting star press. And they both pin him for three. So um, there were definitely some cool moves. But I would say it was an awkward match. I'd say it was not a good match. <laughs> uh, but there was some cool stuff, I guess. I don't know. I didn't really like it overall, though. I, I, there was just something that didn't flow about it. And I thought Rudy Boy just looks very clumsy. There's something about 2002 Ring of Honor. Not that their feuds were great, but it seems like so many of their feuds end with a real whimper instead of a bang, like the Mamaluke Maritato feud. Even just, not that the Lurie Christopher Street Connection feud was good ever, but just the weird abrupt ending where Gabe just shouts, This feud is over. <laughs> and this. Like, unscripted, you know, Shane and London have one of the best matches that the company's going to have all year. I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's in the top five, top ten. You know, makes London a huge star. He finally gets his big, clean win over um, Shane. You could have easily ended the feud there. No, they go on to Glory by Honor and do a three-way. Spanky versus London versus Shane. Um... Shane gets a pin on London and then wins the match. Then they have the gauntlet match where London beats a tired Shane. And then they have this match to end it. And it it just feels like the, the perfect place to end the feud would have been unscript after unscripted. But even if you, even if you felt like the feud was hot, you could, they never built to another big singles match between the two. Also, you don't end a feud between Michael Shane and Paul London by pinning Biohazard. Yeah, I wrote in the notes, um, I don't know what feud is improved, like what, what feud gets its conclusion improved by the addition of Biohazard and an older Rudy Boy Gonzalez. Like, yeah. like I, it seems like backwards booking where, you know, 
we we start off the feud with a couple good one particularly great London chain matches, and then we end the feud with like a tag and the middle of a gauntlet, and you and a three way like they the the end of the feud came in the middle of the feud the blow off did it felt like also they're and, really overdoing this ladder stuff with London like less is more dude. <laughs> Yeah, it's worth noting that if he did, if they did edit off the botch, that would be the second time in two shows he's tried to recreate the unscripted spot. Because on the last show, Glory by Honor, for people that will, from our deep vein, from bozos might remember <laughs> that um, he he did the spot where he tried to do the ladder run spot, but then he jumped so far to the side he fell into the crowd and could have killed himself. So. In a way, that makes the unscripted spot even more impressive because it feels like he's tried to do it t- at least twice since then and hasn't been able to do it. So maybe he was lucky he did it perfectly the time he did it, or maybe he's just gotten stressed from trying to recreate it. But as far as a match, yeah, this was average. This was even though they were trying hard to do you know a bunch of weapon spots and give you what you'd expect from a brawl. I can't go worse than average because they tried, but there's just something. It, it, it just was such a, a whimper of a way to end this feud. And it also felt like, didn't Michael Shane feel like almost an afterthought to you in this match? Like it felt like the focus was on London and the fact that Rudy Boy was wrestling. And to a lesser extent, Biohazard for some reason. Like e- even the finish. Paul London and um, Rudy Boy do a really weak double clothesline that just barely gets Shane over the ropes. And then Shane is out of the rest of the match. Like, that's the move that takes him out. And then London and um, and Rudy Boy double-team Biohazard for, like, 20 or 30 seconds and win. And Shane never gets back in the ring. And it just feels weird. Like, the way the Paul London-Michael Shane feud ends is... Michael Shane being unable to recover from a double clothesline, and then the faces two on one double teaming Biohazard, like yeah. what a what a weird way to end the feud. And like I uh, said, I feel like this match was tacked on because they were like, "Oh, we did it. We started in Boston. We should end it in Boston." Yeah, yeah, I could see them going like, "Let's just." I could almost see Gay going like, "We can get another match out of this because the Boston crowd it'll be new to them." Yeah. Like they've only seen one match between these two, right. but even then, on its own merits, not particularly great. I thought it was funny that um, the ref seemed to blow blow a cover late in the match, like a well, Kieran. Well, that, that's what I was talking about. Where they where they tried to pin Shane and Shane kicked out, and then they all stood around awkwardly for a while. And, and Gabe's been really doing something interesting on all these shows. He's commentated where he tries real hard to refer to all his refs by name and talk about how they're the best refs in the business. And I forget which ref did it, but in this match, once that ref screws up the count, Gabe like really buries him by name. Like, like uh, just a poor decision. Like he, he really, uh, you can almost imagine the Gabe um, temper tantrum he had at the time this happened because he yeah. seems still a little bit irritated just rewatching it that the ref screwed up like a Kieran, a key near fall. Um, I also thought Gabe spent too much of the match going over every single date in the feud. Like, I think Gabe, in some ways, does a good job of tying things together. Like, the very first match on the show, the Dream Partner Tag, he did a good point of saying, you know, hey, remember that time that um, Mark Briscoe offered Red to offered to manage Red against um, Jay, and then Red got pissed at some way he said it, and then 
read Super Kick Mark. Like that kind of stuff that Gabe can do is good, where he remembers the things he's booked and makes sure you remember how things tie together. But I felt like the commentary for this match. He just like spit out like they had this match on this date and they had this match on this date and you don't forget they had this match on this date like he was just reading a list of things that had happened like almost like a robot and he was going really hard into you know this is what you're going to see in Ring of Honor like very much he spent less time talking about the match at points than just talking about the feud and what Ring of Honor's mission statement was. Well, this is going to be a trend for the next several years, so get used to it. <laughs> Still better than Donnie B. Yeah. And the other thing I'll mention is um, one other spot we forgot to bring up from Rudy Boy is he did tried to do a 619, and he kind of got caught halfway through. Like, he couldn't do the full rotation, and it, it was almost adorable. Like, it was impressive. Like, he does half the rotation, but he couldn't swing back in. And I, I thought, like, there was no one there. It was when you kind of do the 619 as a fake out. But it's just another example, I think, that of, um, it was like Rudy Boy in a nutshell, where he can do really cool things, but he can also botch things. And, yeah, just a bad way to end the feud, but not the worst match ever. As the old fans will remember our scale of <laughs> everything is either the worst match of all time or the best match of all time. Yep. So we go on to the Carnage crew taking on Fast Eddie, Don Juan, and Alex Arion. And you might ask, well, isn't the Carnage crew only two guys? Is this a handicap match? And I'll tell you no, and not to speak back so quickly until I'm done talking, listener, because it's H.C. Loke, Tony DeVito, and Masada, because Masada's making his ROH debut here. And this is the day that um, the Carnage crew for a while became a stable instead of just a tag team. And later on, they'd add Justin Incredible to to it. I can't wait. And the, the Carnage crew wins here in 725 when DeVito pinned Fast Eddie after a second rope spike pile driver. This is another match where there's not much to say, and it's another match maybe with a little bit of continuity in the sense of Alex Arion's a local guy, and he had his first match in Ring of Honor on the first Wakefield show, so here he is getting a... A six-man tag spot. Not much to this match. There's some offense, just back-and-forth offense at the start. Don Juan gets beat on for a while. I thought it was interesting that Fast Eddie was the one who took the fall because he would be the guy who clearly had the would end up having the longest career in Ring of Honor. And I think even at this point, the guy you can tell on commentary they were the highest on because Gabe would always emphasize how he did that big... Um, moonsault, fallaway slam type move. Like yep. he was really obviously impressed by that move, but yet he's the one who takes the fall here. This was just another. It wasn't a typical Carnage Crew match in that there wasn't weapon spots or or a brawling, but it was. I mean, seven twenty-five is pretty short for a six-man. Yeah, and it was just there to put them over as they keep going to their main event on the next show. Yeah, the the one spot that that stood out because, like I said, this was just it was just just a match, wasn't bad. But one spot that stood out to me was Eddie jumped off of Don Juan's back to do a top rope Rana on Masada, and it was so weird and sloppy. Like somehow they managed to get it off, but it was very, very it was just a very strange spot. Do you remember this? I remember the Rana. I, I I forget like the jump. Like so much of the stuff, just it's weird. The stuff that I really remember vividly, and then the stuff like that I don't remember. I was gonna say the thing I really remember from this match is 
Alex Arion, I guess, deserves a reward where he was the first guy in Ring of Honor to put his hands up and uh, clearly block and protect himself on a chair shot. Uh, so credit to him because so far the country when they threw chairs was uh, were hitting everyone pretty much was taking it right hard on the dome directly and alex arian goes full lance storm here put make sure to put up both his arms get in the way he you know alex arian was big into reading the medical papers and knowing about cte before anyone else making sure he was protected here and the other thing is this is the second time this has happened but gabe like mentions that the Carnage crew are wearing the controversial Jinx clothing line. They're very controversial, those Jinx clothes. Go to Jinx.com for the controversial Jinx clothing. And he's mentioned that once before, and I'm trying to figure out what was so controversial about it. And I was like, and I think to myself, are these Nazi shirts? <laughs> and if they are, the Carnage crew were ahead of their time, because if they had come to 2017, apparently Nazism would be super mainstream. Matt, I've heard some good things about Jinx clothing, and I've heard some bad things about Jinx clothing. Like, some of the shirts are good, some of them, yeah, I'll admit are offensive. But, you know, some of them are good. Is this... Oh, I get it. I get it. Can we we just unequivocally say that the Nazis can go fuck themselves? I think we can both agree on this. Uh, If you're a Nazi, I don't want you listening to this show. I, uh... I don't like you if you're a Nazi. I, yeah. I'm just going to say it. I don't, I don't think you're a good person. Yeah, we don't like Nazis and would not do not want our audience to be Nazis or white supremacists. And I'm going to say this. Fritz von Erich, you just played a Nazi, and I don't hate you because of that. I hate you because you were a bad father. I'm going to go that far, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Ed Norton played a Nazi, but he reformed, and he's a good actor. I don't know much about his personal life, so I like him. Ed Norton, I'm neutral on you right now, but let me tell you something. You go true blue on this Nazi stuff, cutting you out. You're cutting you out. You're going to go in the machine, and the machine's not going to go where you want to go. <laughs> I'm a Jew. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along, Samoa Joe versus Homicide. <laughs> that is the best segue. I think we just got the record book. Yeah. Homicide defeated Samoa Joe in 10 minutes even with a roll-up. Matt, this would be the first time these guys wrestled of what would be like a hundred matches in Ring of Honor. What do you think about the very first time they wrestled? Yeah, it was like it's just like bloom out of the blue. Legendary feud starts, right? Um, yeah. You know, they didn't do. They definitely didn't do all they could do. Samoa's Joe's like his his kind of his offense that he kind of does to this day was already very well established. You know, whether it's the face wash. Or the uh, you know the power bomb and the kick out into the STF and then he switches into another um, you know another uh, submission he, the choke was already established the only thing he hadn't really done yet uh, was the uh, ole ole kick he hasn't he hadn't pr- premiered that yet but um, but I, I you know it's 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 impressive to see just how fully like we've talked about this a few times already on this very episode, but it's impressive to see how fully formed Samoa Joe was. Um, but, you know, they do a lot of the, uh, you know, the back and forth. So they start out with, um, you know, some wrestling. Uh, Homicide's left shoulder is taped up, um, so he's, he's selling a shoulder injury. Um, Joe, Joe does, like, two straight of the running kicks in the corner, and Homicide goes for the STF, but Joe uh, bails out of the ring, and Homicide hits the running helo on Joe, which is always good. They do a slap-chop exchange. A lot of 
a lot of those on this show, uh, especially in the next three matches, like these like mid-ranks slaps and chops, like a lot of those exchanges. They probably overdo that in 2002 indie wrestling, and also in 2017 New Japan. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, Joe does a, a big slam aside, runs runs at him in the corner. Um, uh, Joe hits an enziguri on the floor. Uh, it does a dragon suplex right on top of Homicide's head. Um, and the referee counts a near fall, even though side was on his head, like his shoulders weren't anywhere close to down. But Gabe does not call that out. Um, Homicide hits a top rope Rana, and then la- he does lariats to Joe's back and front with a two count. Joe hits uh, the Death Valley driver, then a lariat, um, but Side's foot's on the ropes. Uh, uh, Homicide hits a big, like, back suplex, and... In the middle of this, because they're talking about, um, you know, the Big Japan and uh, Zero One, and Gabe's like, we don't do interpromotional ma- uh, feuds in ROH. There's the, no invasions. They're all overdone. So, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess it's I guess it's a statute of limitations on everything. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do another point that's going to come up later in the show, but I'm just going to say that... Uh, Maybe Gabe Sapolsky was a time traveler because, like, there's so many things that seem to reference other things. Um, actually, I might have already missed it because there were, there was a point. Oh, okay, actually, I gotta go back. I gotta reference it right now. I think I missed this before. It was during the opening match, like the Briscoes mixed the Dream Partners tag. Gabe says something like, um, "You know." Like he's talking about how tragic it was. It is that Marcus joined the prophecy, and he says something like, "You know, I think you know if it wasn't for the prophecy, Jay and Mark would have had one more match, and then when Mark turned eighteen, they'd have come gotten back together as a tag team." And it's like <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Like he's literally telling you what he's going to book. And I, I think that maybe. Um, he gave just a time traveler and he's dropping clues about everything that's going to happen in the future he's so on exci- this show. He's so excited about the ideas that he has that he has to like share the share them early. Like he's spoiling his own stuff. Like like he should have just gone, you know, you know feuds are, and interpromotional angles are so played out. But let me tell you, if there was one to be done in a few years with, say, another Philly-based promotion that's more of a hardcore vibe, it might be good, but that'll never happen. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, if, if we did a Cage of Death in ROH, that would be <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just funny. That, that, But that does, I guess, um, emph- like show a point that as stubborn as Gabe could be at some things, Gabe also did show at times a willingness to change if he was proven wrong about something like there'd be guy wrestlers that he would have. You could tell he wasn't high on most notably Chris hero that he would then really start to get and like later and things like this, you know, where Gabe's definitely, I I believe that that's a genuine belief he had that interpersonal angles were overplayed and stupid. Well, keep in mind, this was like a year after the invasion and yeah, you know. so I mean, there was, and a couple years after the NWO's 800 iterations, but actually, no, the, the, there was an iteration of the NWO that very year. Oh yeah, so in that sense, you can understand why Gabe's reacting to that, but still, it is funny to think like three or four years down the line, he'd be doing probably one of the most fondly remembered interpromotional angles of the entire decade, yep. or maybe modern wrestling. 
I mean, so, literally all wrestling, because were there any international angles in ancient wrestling? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be like New Japan, UWFI, NWO, and CZW Ring of Honor. I back, mean, for back the, in the, the um, back when the uh, Roman Wrestling Federation crashed the uh, Colosseum, or the Greek Wrestling Federation crashed the Colosseum and wrestled the Romans. The best, the best invasion in ancient wrestling history. You know that hot invasion angle three hundred. You know they made that whole movie about it. Yeah. Those the, arrows invaded people's skulls. The, tro- the Trojan uh, invasion angle. <laughs> but uh, oh my god we're off track today this is this is either the best episode we've ever done or the worst you, you the listener will decide but yeah I, I thought this was a good match yeah, um, yeah. well I, I didn't totally finish so yeah yeah i'm sorry yeah no, well no so um so Kamasad actually gets to the ropes in joe's choke and then they do another one of these slap fights which is i mean i'm, I'm making fun of it but it, i always enjoy it and then Homicide just gets a really quick roll-up for three, which I was surprised by. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good match. Like, it wasn't anywhere close to what they could do. Um, and it was short, but it was... I thought it was pretty good. And then they do the handshake post-match and hug, um, which is fine because Joe, uh, you know, he he's doesn't follow the prophecies thing, but Joe loves Steve Carino. He makes it clear multiple times, and Homicide, last we saw him, was stabbing Steve Carino in the eye. So, just what... Whose side is Joe on here? That's my question. Yeah, that was the one weird thing of that ending where it's almost like the booking was trying to serve two different masters and they could only serve one because they're doing this thing in the last couple of matches where, well, in all Joe matches so far, where after every match he shakes hands, even though the prophecy doesn't shake hands because they want to sell the idea that Joe has tension with them and he's only their hired gun that doesn't believe in what they believe. But at the same time, yeah, like you just said, how's does it make sense that the whole reason this match happened is he wants to avenge like the brutal stabbing of his friend, and then at the end of the match that he loses, he like shakes his hand, yeah. but and hugs him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and and like Joe will continue to be linked with Steve Carino going forward in Ring of Honor for the a few quite a bit of time, so. It's just like Gabe wanted to show this one thing, but maybe didn't think to realize how it kind of makes the other thing look stupid. Yep. But, but yeah, I thought the match was good. It was clearly a first match between two guys, and you know they would go on to top it many times. And it was only 10 minutes. I thought it was interesting that it was a match where the first two or three minutes, it was almost all Joe, like very... And also Joe kind of working to the situation where he was clawing at Homicide's eyes and biting him. You you know, he was working it like he had a vendetta against this guy. But then after about two or three minutes, they just made the rest of the match like a back and forth, big indie match. But that was good, too. I mean, they're good. They're obviously very good at that. Um, Also, it was um, Homicide's first singles match in ROH, which is a noteworthy thing. Yeah. His first singles match on DVD, I should say. This is his first big win, too, and it kind of puts them as at even because Joe had choked out Homicide in the six-man tag at the last show, so this kind of evens it up, and when Joe gives gets the world tit- the title spoiler, you know, this gives him one of those ready-made challengers who has a win over him, but match was good. Uh, the slapping spots were cool, although I, I also kind of cringe a little bit at how hard they were hitting each other, and... Gabe, of course, has to tell us that this is strong style. And I know that 
Samoa Joe and Homicide were probably the two guys most closely associated with strong style in the U.S. Indies. Like, they would constantly, a lot of announcers would talk about, oh, they're strong style, they're strong style. Honestly, they, Where, would, they would both talk about it themselves in their own promos. Yeah, like, even Joe would be like, you know, people call themselves strong style, you don't know what strong style is. But strong style was this, I mean, it's weird that New Japan's bigger now that it's been in a few, in a few years, but early 2000s, strong style was just thrown around as this, buzzword that most people didn't even know what it meant i think people just reduced it down to they hit each other hard in the middle of the ring it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything really so cogent you know like i think it's, it's kind of a it's a vague idea of just like stiffness yeah. and head drops basically yeah i mean a big part of it is it's new japan you know yeah. it, it not as much as a, a definition of something very specific but Good match. Um, I like the roll-up finish in the sense that it protected Joe while still giving Homicide the win, but I felt like the roll-up wasn't quite intricate or smooth to... uh, I felt like something more should have put... It should have been more complicated or looked tighter because it was kind of just... He just flipped and rolled him up and Joe was down for three in the middle of this match out of nowhere and i would have liked to see a little bit more put joe down but i thought this was a good match and it was just it was cool seeing these guys wrestle this early like i feel like i'm over i'm giving joe too much credit in the sense of when i watch him i just focus on wow he's a looks so young and a little bit lighter than he did so every time he does like a move like here he takes a rana from homicide and when he takes a big like backdrop driver he makes sure to jump high so he lands right on his head and those are things that joe probably would do three or four years down the road but for some reason since i know it's young 2002 joe i'm like oh man he's so athletic like ooh, young fresh joe you know but good match and my one bit i'll bring up gabe commentary he plugs Night of the Butcher with Abdul the Butcher, which will be the next show and the next show we cover. And Gabe says a line that you can only say if you're advertising wrestling or a steakhouse, which is, you're going to see a fork and some bleeding. That's his selling point for the next show, which is, you're going to see a fork and some bleeding. It like, would be a really I, weird advertisement for a steakhouse, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to see a fork and some bleeding. What if it's a steakhouse where they cut the steak for you? So it's like, you're going to see a a fork in front of you. Then you're going to see some bleeding. Then you're going to taste a piece of delicious filet mignon right in your mouth. (laughs) Every restaurant should have, at some point, their slogan should be right in your mouth. (laughs) Like, every restaurant should be like Dairy Queen. It's like, you're going to see a red plastic spoon and some soft serve. You know, I I just just Right in your mouth. I, I just, for some reason, I love that line. You're going to see a fork and some bleeding. It was one of those points where occasionally you get that moment where you watch wrestling and you just hear something or see something and you go, what is life? What am I doing here? Like, what is this? Other interesting... Gonna, sorry. Oh, go on. No, Other go on. interesting thing about Night of the Butcher. So Gabe's like, it's been switched from Hamburg, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, which I'm sure you'll explain next time. Yeah. But then still in the promo at the end of the show, the prophecy you're still talking about how it's in Hamburg. I don't know... I mean, I think probably what they should have done is just Gabe should not have mentioned that it was in Philadelphia because it didn't really matter to the DVD audience. So it, 
then it wouldn't have made the promo at the end seem inconsistent. Yeah, and again, I think maybe that they were showing a Colt Cabana entrance from the next show. I think that tells you that maybe the production of this, yeah, the yeah. post-production of the show was done quite a bit away. So right. Gabe was probably, had, I mean, that show was probably already done, obviously, you know, when they were doing commentary for this. Exactly. So, yeah, one of those weird things. And one something that wasn't weird, that was perfectly normal, number one contender's trophy match, AJ Styles defeating Christopher Daniels, making his first successful defense of the trophy, and via pinfall in 15 minutes, 10 seconds, after he hits the Styles Clash. Um, this was where I was going to bring up the thing you mentioned that Dave said about how it's funny that you know, the number one contenders trophy is so far up the card and it's being fought for by the top wrestlers and the guy Xavier's fighting guys like Jeremy Lopez and an 18 year old Jay Briscoe. But, um, I think the weird thing to me also was going back to the opening segment where Daniels is talking about how, ha none of the titles are being defended tonight. And if I win the number one contenders trophy, it'll never, you know, Xavier will never have to defend the title. It's like, Where's the authority figure to tell us why that would be allowed? Like, the whole point of the number one contenders trophy, for example, we were told is it was to make sure that every the title was always defended for a rightful contender. And it's like on the last show, AJ wins the tight the number one contenders trophy. Why doesn't Xavier have to wrestle him tonight? They're both on the same card. He has like why does AJ have to defend the trophy? I I don't get it, you know, because it's not a rule where if we look in the future where every guy has to defend the trophy before they get to cash it in. Some guys instantly go on the next show to a title match. Well, ROH so, changes their philosophy about number one contendership multiple times over the next yeah. few years, so that's what explains that. Yeah, it, it's just I just think it's weird. Rest, it's weird internal logic where a guy talks about how he doesn't have to defend the title. And no one explains why he's gotten away with that. Like, is he booking his own matches? I mean, right. even just a line where it's like, our lawyers tied it up till next month. I mean, there's nothing like that. But that's too many digressions from me. Um, the match itself, I thought this was better than their match at Road to the Title. I, I uh, There's something about Christopher Daniels' matches often, although strangely not a lot of the ones I've seen so far in Ring of Honor in 2002, but in general... Where, and I'm not the only one to say this, that leaves me a little cold. He's mechanically great. There's something a little bit missing. But I was feeling that way the first few minutes of this match. But they did so many good professional exchanges that by the end they had just won me over. I was like, this is too good to deny. This It's not like this was a great match. But it was a match where part of me didn't want to like it after the first few minutes. And it turned out to be something I'd call very good. I, I feel like you can tell these two are comfortable with each other already at this point where just standard moves they do look a little bit different. Like how they take arm drags where one guy's nearly horizontal in the air while he's taking or giving the arm drag. Stuff like that where they're comfortable with each other. Or AJ gets a monkey flipped into the corner and he hits the corner with his legs and then flips backwards into a different kind of bump. Like they're just doing things a little bit different on some spots because maybe just they click with each other. And the key spot in this match for me, it's something that they've mentioned in that Christopher Daniels, AJ shoot. I mentioned earlier what they remember from this match. If you watch, look out for this. 
for some reason, AJ Styles decides to hit the stroke on Christopher Daniels. And if you listen to the match, you can clearly see hear Chris Daniels in the next moment when AJ puts him in a submission, say to AJ, I think twice in a row, I'm telling Jeff that you stole the stroke. <laughs> and like when they talked about this match, that's what they remembered from it. Like years later was that was the match. And even, and it was funny because Daniels was really passionate in the interview and remembered it. And AJ was like, I didn't do the stroke. Did I No, I didn't, I didn't do it. And it's like, yeah, he, I mean, it was almost exactly the stroke. It wasn't, there may be a little bit different how he got to it, but Jeff Gorman called it a face buster, but yes, it was the stroke. Yeah. He, he did the stroke, the, the forward Russian leg sweep. And, there wasn't a ton of story to this. It, it, like, there wasn't a, a lot of identity to this match, but it was just two guys who are good at wrestling, very professional, who would go on to wrestle another hundred times. And, you know, lots of cool little spots and moments, good action, pace, good pace, good action. I just thought it was a very good match. It, it's almost a very good match that I don't have a lot of specific things to say about, but I, I enjoyed it. I mean, what do you think? I felt differently from you. I um, I liked the match at Road to the Title better. I thought it had a lot more intensity. Felt like more was at stake, even though you know they're both, I guess, for number one contenderships for title shots. But you know, I thought everything was done fine. The execution was good, but I didn't think it had any intensity or storyline. I didn't think there was a sense of escalation. So it just felt like it just felt a little bit aimless to me. So that's why I didn't think it was that great. I mean, I thought it was still a good match, but I definitely thought it was the lesser of their two matches. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, we, we kind of, our takes, are like our thoughts on the match are the same. It's just a matter of how we sort of uh, process those thoughts that we had. Which yeah, is just, how we value it. Yeah, how we valued it. Yeah. Every, every, you know, the, 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 the moves were cool, the, the but like there wasn't a lot of heat and there wasn't a lot of escalation, which, I don't know, I just needed in this match. Um, I did enjoy, though, at the end, Gabe calling AJ, quote, one of the hottest guys in the business. <laughs> Yum. Simply, I don't know. Simply luscious. If there would be a drop, we could play from the Wrestling Observer Live soundboard from AJ, probably at this point. The wrestling we- fan community. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's for some reason it's a match that I don't know why. I not that I loved it, but I still thought it was very good. But. It's it it's a match where I think a lot of people would have widely different opinions because it's that match where some people will say, oh, there's no soul to this match. It's just guys doing moves and being mechanically good. And, you know, it's, it's the criticism that was given to a lot of those Daniels matches. But for some reason, this match, I don't know what it was. It just it did enough to win me over. But I, I don't disagree that there wasn't really like anything super memorable to it. And there wasn't anything really that would make it stick out to you in a, in a sea of matches. And my criticism extends to saying it was a good match. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. So that's, that's my biggest critique that it was merely good. So that's not so bad. Yeah. I'm, it's just, but I could see depending on, I think if you, if you don't like those kind of matches, like what we're describing, and if you think of a lot of those even TNA era matches with these guys. If if you like those matches, you'll like this. If you don't, you won't. I, I think that's a pretty easy way to whatever your opinions on those kind of error of matches are. This is one of those matches. I really like this cool uh, 
arm drag that AJ does at the beginning of the match. Like, it's a really weird Lucha-style arm drag. Maybe it was one of the things that you were talking about. Where, like, yeah, where, where he's almost, like, mid-air when he's doing it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was really cool. I don't remember seeing him doing that much any other time, so I like yeah. that. I thought, yeah, I thought that was really cool, too. Um, I guess there's not much else to say about that match. Uh, after the match, the Prophecy attacks, including Mark Briscoe, and Jay makes the save. Uh, he gets beaten up, and then Mark hits kind of like a shining climbing wizard onto Jay, and then the SAT and Red make the save, and uh, they kind of serve up Xavier to AJ, who hits the Styles Clash. Yeah, there's it's just a very standard segment where a lot of these guys would be wrestling each other. So it's almost like a raw style segment where here's a bunch of the feuds that are going on or are going to start, and here they are all doing a brief brawl. The only thing I thought was notable was the SAT did a double bulldog to Xavier, and Xavier decided to take the bump right on his head and shoulder. And I thought, like, you didn't need to do that, but that was kind of crazy. And yeah, just just those are you'll see those combinations of those wrestlers wrestle each other in the upcoming episodes of Through the Years. You'll see it with your ear holes. And thirty minute Iron Man match is our main event. Doug Williams versus American Dragon. American Dragon beats Doug Williams in the thirty minute Iron Man match by a score of one fall to zero. And the fall Dragon one was at eighteen minutes twenty five seconds when he pinned Doug Williams after two dragon suplexes. And he held on after that, didn't give up another fall, didn't give up a single fall, and won the match. Matt, um, it's your turn, and I know this is a match you Last night we were talking on Messenger, and you mentioned how you were only going to watch like part of the show and then end today, and then you got into this match enough to finish the show last night. Yeah, I remembered. You know, I definitely watched this match. You know, back when I first got it, you know, more than a decade ago, and I remember thinking the match was kind of boring, but it definitely was not boring. Uh, this was a really cool match. There's a lot of innovative stuff, including a number of spots that I don't remember ever seeing before or since. Um, like since I watched it last night, I mean, um, but uh, I, you know, so you know, Williams can't shake hands, which is you know the the uh, they haven't forgotten that angle, so that's I guess good that they if they bother to do it, it's good that they didn't forget it. Um, it was weird at the very beginning. You saw a couple guys try to start a USA chant, which is oh. just not the vibe they're going for here. Um, but I'll note there's I think there's always sorry to interrupt but there's always a couple fans like that because I'll note that even PWG that even though some people don't like that crowd because they think oh they're too hipster they're a very respectful crowd and even in 2016 and 2017 PWG when Zack Saber was like a top face there'd be like two or three fans that would chant USA USA and boo Zack Saber Saber and he would get they would get booed down but it seems like there's just always two or three people in any crowd that are going to chant USA, USA, if you're not from USA. At most wrestling shows, there's probably going to be at least one guy there who's just, like, there to see a wrestling show and doesn't really get the whole scene, you know? Yeah. Um, but as we've talked about on many different shows, I love these two guys' mat work that they always <laughs> do at the beginning of a match. Like, they always look great, and it was great here. So Doug works on a Dragon's left arm. Uh, he, does, he, like, works on the wrist and the shoulder. It's great. Um... And so uh, Dragon, who they're calling Brian Danielson at this point, um, he does a Moodle lock, and then William elbows his way out. And then, so there's so he, there was a Moodle lock in the AJ match, too. So it's two Moodle locks, two matches in a row. So that's that's unusual. Um, but Danielson, uh, you know, stays on his leg. Um, 
Then he grabs a cravat, and then Williams grabs one of his own. Um, then they do this really cool spot, which I don't know. I just thought it was really cool. They started like doing like judo throws off the rope, like 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 grab the guy, push him into the rope, throw him, and then like then like go run back at him, grab the guy, push him into the rope, throw him really fast, and then Dragon does one of his own. And I really I don't remember ever seeing that in American wrestling, where they're just like throwing each other really quickly back and forth. And I just it was just a really fun spot. I love stuff like that where it's like I've never seen it before. Um, so they have a, a, a Williams has a dragon in a head scissors and dragon uh, kind of handstands his way out and goes right into a headlock, which was cool. Then another spot that I've never seen before. So Williams is pretty, has dragon like about to turn him into a Boston crab, like where he's you know dragon's on his back and Williams hasn't turned him over yet, but he has his legs and dragon takes his legs and he pushes back and flips Williams all the way over him uh, with his legs. That's another spot I've never seen before that I just thought was so cool. Um, then they do a chop exchange and, uh, and Danielson takes Williams down with chops to his neck. So like he's really targeting the neck now. Um, then Williams does like this upside down gory special and Dragon reverses, um, and then like does one of his own and puts him into the top rope upside down and European uppercuts him. Then he hits a superplex, does a delayed cover for two, then a Northern Light suplex with a bridge plus hooking the leg, which you don't see that often for two. Then uh, Williams kicks out of one Dragon suplex, but Dragon hits another one and that's the that's the fall at 18 minutes. Um, so they have a 30-second 30 30 rest period, and then Dragon goes, uh, goes right after him. Uh, he does, tries to do another uh, Dragon suplex, doesn't really get it, but then he goes right to the cattle mutilation, and then he kind of hits like a, a, a body bag type of move for two. Um, Williams does a tope onto Dragon on the floor, which is really cool from a big guy like that, and then he hits a series of knees for two. Um, so like you have, so you have like the dynamic is basically Dragon has a lead now. Williams is just desperate to uh, to come back and uh, and tie up, but Dragon is still on offense because uh, one fall is not a safe lead because you know it could easily be tied at the last second. Uh, Dragon hits the flying elbow, uh, elbow, uh, headbutt. Excuse me. Williams uh, goes for the chaos theory and Danielson goes to the ropes, so both fall out of the ring. Then Williams counters a top rope uh, back suplex with a crossbody. He finally uh, hits uh, the Chaos Theory, but Dragon kicks out. So that, that's the big storyline. Dragon's kicked out of the Chaos Theory before. He keeps kicking out of everyone's finisher. You have to hit finishers twice to pin him. Um, so uh, Williams follows it up with rolling Germans, and then on the third one, he hits a Chaos Theory. And he, was, he, would, he would have pinned him, but Dragon's leg just fall into the ropes. So that's a really cool spot. Um, so it's, it's really like the pace is really picking up. Uh, Doug hits a Brain Buster for two. But then Danielson comes back with a drop kick to Doug's neck, and then he finally hits the top rope back suplex with one minute left. Um, but Williams kicks out, and then as the clock runs out, uh, there's a, a quick roll up by Doug, and then Williams grabs a cross face, and he's in the cross face as the time runs out. Uh, so Dragon wins, he holds on. I just thought the match was really innovative, a lot better than I expected. Very fast paced, did not feel like 30 minutes at all. Um, I don't know, I just, I just really liked it. I like this match. I, in some ways, I liked it a little bit worse, but I'm really conflicted on this match. I think it's a tale of two matches. But before I get into that, I'm going to get into actually a little bit of background from the Observer again. 
Dave says, and again, this is Dave going off of live reports. Obviously, Dave wasn't there. He wrote about this match, part of the crowd liked it a lot, and part of the crowd didn't appear to like it. Unlike most Ring of Honor shows, there were a lot of parents who brought their kids, and they were walking out during the main event, partially because they probably didn't understand all the mat work, and also because it was after 11 p.m., and it was, es- and it was estimated that only 200 to 300 fans were left at the finish. Now... Again, reminder, this was a crowd that apparently had a 500 crowd, so that would have meant 2 to 250 had left, you know, almost half the, half the crowd. But um, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I believe that or not. We only see mostly the hard cam side, so it's hard to judge. I will note that I heard a couple isolated, boring chants from one guy in the first half of the match. Like, he would say boring, and then no one else would say it. I think the crowd got way more into the match as it went on. But I'll say this is a, for me, this is a tale of two matches because the first 15 minutes are almost all mat work. And I really like their mat work, but there's no real story to it or, or like it, it's just mat work to fill the time. And it's really good mat work. I would disagree with that, but that's but go on. Okay. But see, I didn't see a lot of story to it. I, what I, I liked the mat work. I especially liked, I like when Williams and Dragon wrestle each other. A lot of times when they're in holds, they won't break the hold by doing a cool counter, although sometimes they will. Like, sometimes they'll just, if they can reach any part of the other guy, they'll just smack them hard and, like, growl until the other guy releases the hold. And I think that's something that modern wrestling needs more of. Like, not every move has to be broken through a rope break or a cool counter. Like, sometimes you can just hit a guy hard until they release it. And But I felt like in the first 15 minutes occasionally they would do one or two non-mat work spots and you'd think okay the match is going to change like a lot of times matches start with a bunch of mat work and then it ramps up and then every time they would do one or two spots they'd instantly take it back to the mat in the first 15 minutes and i thought oh maybe they're doing something like different like that could be interesting too but then once the 15 minute time call happens instantly changes to right around that time to just more of a match, much more like the road to the title, but I thought better than the road to the title match. I thought there were so many, there was a lot of, they really start focusing on each other's necks at that point, like way more than the first 15. And I also thought they'd start doing lots of cool touches in the match. Like, like you said with the, the he's dragon survives the chaos theory suplex and Gabe always makes a note of whenever Gabe survives another wrestler's finisher where even if dragon in some ways isn't getting as big a push as some other guys and he's not as there on every show he makes a point to sell that dragon is the guy who kicks out of every big finisher he kicks out of the styles clash he kicked out of the uh, slice bread number two he kicked out of the key crusher he's kicked out of the um chaos theory twice now and like you said when they do it a second time and it just happens that dragon was lucky that his feet were almost right in the ropes and he just barely has to stretch like i thought that was a great spot and a great way to protect the finish and get a great near fall um that spot you mentioned earlier where dragon wins the only fall of the match he hits two dragon suplexes then after the 30 seconds, he instantly goes for a third, which makes complete sense, trying to get a second fall. And in, when um, Doug Williams resists, he turns it into the cat of mutilation. He drags him to the mat. And then what Williams does is he stands up 
and turns it into a reverse suplex for a near fall. And I don't know how many people live got it, but that was the finish to the Road to the Title match, where he pinned uh, Dragon with that. So I thought that was a cool reference of their first match in Ring of Honor. Um, I, I liked the last few minutes where Williams was doing the classic Iron Man thing, where he was being really urgent and really trying to dominate and really trying to tie up the match. I thought it was a little weird that after the second Chaos Theory suplex and the Brain Buster, Dragon basically like hits punches Williams when they're both on the mat and almost hulks up like after he just taken a whole bunch of big offense and goes on control for like 30 seconds of the final minute, which I think is a little weird where I know you were saying, you know, Guys, when you're up one nothing, you need you can't just rest on your laurels and you have to try and put it away. But I also think the um, the tension in an Iron Man match when a guy's up one to nothing or just up by one fall is can the other guy tie it up? I don't think there's a lot of drama in can someone make it two zero in the final minute. The drama's in the one one tie or the two two tie or whatever. And so for the last once they did the last minute call for Dragon to then like make a bit of a comeback I thought was a little weird. I also feel like the, the last thing I'll say before I give it back to you, I thought the end where, um, Williams puts dragon in the cross face. That's always like a little bit of a pet peeve of mine in the sense of in one way, I think it's really cool when you have timelet finishes where the guy is in a submission and they tease, like is he going to tap out right at the end? But I also think there's a bit of the logic that's kind of dumb where if you only have 10 seconds left, especially when they're doing time calls like a match like this, you should always go for the pin because if you do the time call, I don't care how painful that submission is. If you hear 10 seconds left and then five seconds later you're put in the crossface, you know you're not going to tap Like if you go by just natural logic because you know, unlike a regular match, if you just hold out five seconds, the match is over and you win. So it's one of those things where it would have made him look stupid if he tapped out. And for a person like me and with my weird hangups, it makes me think like, oh, that's like not the right thing to do, Doug. But I still thought this was a really good match. I really enjoyed it. But I thought the, I thought there, it was like two separate matches. See, the, uh, to me, the first half was all about them like looking for an in on each other. You know, Dan, uh, uh, William started off with the arm, uh, then they were, sort of, they were sort of like went to the leg, and then they sort of dragon discovered the neck, and he started attacking the neck, and he did the chops to the neck, he did the, the, the they tra- trading cravats, um, and that led to the finish of the first fall with the, uh, the double dragon suplexes. So I think it, it ended up making, to me, it was, a, to me, it told a story. Like, it wasn't a super, you know, obvious story. It had the beginning feeling out process, but I think it built better than even your average wrestling match. I mean, I don't think this was like a match of the year or anything, but I thought that the flow of the match, I thought it was very coherent. Um, and as far, I get what you're saying about the the thing at the end with the, with the submission. I think just wrestlers always do that. Um, but I, but I, I would defend the beginning of the match as far as having, uh, a rhyme and a reason. See, I, again, I, I want to make clear, I did really like the mat work. I just felt I disagree about how much meaning it had. I don't, I don't feel like they even really worked on the neck till right around the 15 minutes when the match becomes almost no mat work. And that's when they really start like doing the chops to the neck more. And I'd say it was a little bit before that, but hmm, I almost want to rewatch it now, although it's 30 minutes. And there's one other thing I think about 
but this is more about Iron Man's as a whole. And I want to ask you is, do you, what do you feel about Iron Man matches that only have one fall in the whole match? Like this match or the Brett Sean Iron Man? Like, do you think Iron Man matches should have more than one fall? Do you think it's kind of a ripoff? No, I think it's just they should all be different so that they're unpredictable. I like that the, what they, the way they did with this one. I mean, the Brett Sean one was, you know, obnoxious in the way they did it. This one wasn't. This was different because they had the one fall, but it wasn't like they saved until the end. They had one fall in the middle of the match. It's, I think it's, it's cool. It's novel. It's different. You know, I like that they have different types of this, you know. You know, like Triple H and The Rock did it one way, and they did it great. But you don't want to just keep doing the same thing. So I, I thought that it worked well for this. But I don't think that there's a, there, I don't think there's any one way to do it right. It's not my favorite gimmick match to begin with. But if you're going to do it, I think it's good to mix it up. I feel like actually I feel like you kind of swayed me with that argument over to your thing. I I didn't think about the novelty of mixing it up. But I do kind of feel like before you said that that um. Not that this is always, not that Iron Man's always go this way, because I just named two examples where it didn't, but I feel like there's almost an unspoken promise when you book an Iron Man match that there should be at least two or three falls, because otherwise you're just seeing a match that has one fall and extends. Like, I feel one of the things that makes the Iron Man match novel is you know there's going to be like ups and downs, and one guy's going to be up, and then there's going to be a tie, and that you're going to see more than one finish to a match, which is what. The most, to me, the most novel thing about an Iron Man match is that you know the match ends, and then it's, you're going to see another end. You're going to see another end. You're going to see guys lose multiple times, and the match continues. But I think one of the reasons why they did the one fall is cutting ahead. There'll be a post-match promo with Doug Williams, and he'll say that you know. Dragon, you beat me fair and square, but in Britain we do two out of three false matches, and if we had a two out of three false match, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to beat me. I'd get you then. And so I feel like that's probably one of the reasons they did the the, the way they did it is right. he, he can't say that if it's more than a one fall match. It exactly. has to be that way. Yeah. Yeah, but that's but that's fine. And I thought it was fine for this. You know, again, this wasn't the best match in the world, but I thought it was a lot of fun. For a thirty minute match, like I found the match to be fun, which is you know, not always something that you could say for something like this. And I'll say this, like, whether Dave was true about that many people leaving or not, and again, maybe we need to flash the Joe Gagne, like, symbol and have him tell us what it was like, but um, I feel like if you watch this match, even though I really like the mat work, and but, so this isn't a comment on the mat work, but the crowd got more and more into the match, like, throughout. So I feel like even if there were some people that stayed that weren't completely sold i feel like the longer the match went on they the more people they converted yeah which is with uh, the way it's supposed to be yeah exactly like the, and that's a great I, I said earlier about a different match like that's all you can ask is if you get them if you get the fans more and more into a match like the xavier lopez match you know where people started having no reaction and no expectations. And obviously, Dragon and Williams were more well-known and more respected and just better wrestlers. But still, you know, 30-minute Iron Man match, and they ended way more over than they started. So, big success in in that sense. And I agree, it's not a match of the year contender, but it's still a really good match. Yes, definitely. So, um, after that, also, I found well. Actually, it's not that interesting. I was <laughs> going to say something, but I just I'm going to self-edit because it's not that interesting, and we try and keep these under a certain length. So, 
we go to backstage. Uh, American Dragon is cutting a promo, putting over Doug Williams. He calls him at himself and Williams two of the best indie mat wrestlers around, which is like strangely braggadocious for Brian Danielson. Like most wrestlers, that would be normal, but for Brian Danielson, it's like wow, he's not being modest for once. And uh, Dragon says Williams was so close to winning a second time, but no one beats him twice. He proposes they have a third match down the road, and he ends his promo by saying, dig it, like Macho Man, and gives a wink to the camera. Further, went, proving, oh. further proving my the, my theory that he has always been charming. Yeah, like I literally was going to go like, oh, like you little scamp, like so lovable even then. Like maybe it wasn't coming out as often, but he was clearly like the Brian Danielson people love even then. Yep. Like that kind of lovable, charming, little bit of a goofball. Yep. The guy, like, just doing stuff like dig it and then winking to the camera after a promo. <laughs> just cute stuff. And uh, like you said before, they're calling him Brian Danielson now. I'll note the Observer said that was a Ring of Honor decision, which is interesting. And also, uh, at least on the show, they still seem to be kind of getting used to that because a lot of times on commentary they would still call him Dragon, which I guess it was still his nickname. Oh, they did that for the entire rest of his run on, on ROH. Yeah, but it, it's a little weird on the show where you figure the name change happens because then even I like wrote as American Dragon because you kind of get in this one mode and then when people start using interchangeably, you'll you're still like you keep wanting to say Dragon because you get used to it. It'll be it's fine. He he went by both names basically. Yeah, uh, I think he'll do okay. Um, he might. He might he, that kid might work out. <laughs> Elsewhere backstage, there's a frustrated Doug Williams. And he puts over Dragon, but like I said, he says in England, they have two or three falls matches, and if he had one of those with Dragon, he'd definitely win. I'll note here that um, the Wakefield Americal Civic Center building was interesting in that it seems like they had no backstage area, because on this show and the last time they were there, like when you see Dragon... He's just doing a promo in front of a door, and when he opens the door after the promo, it's just like going into the back parking lot where there's cars, and you can see like the night sky. And for some reason, William starts this promo by walking into the building from a door outside, where once again you op- you see him open the door, and it's like out on the street, and he's still in his tights. So it seemed like the American Civics and Loki had a promo on the first show where he did the similar thing. It must have all just- gotten changed on a bus. Yeah, it feels like maybe the, their dressing room was their cars or something, yeah. and that there's no backstage area at the American Civic Center. Although, I mean, some of the other promos did have them peel in different areas, but it all looks small. And we, we're still wrapping up with a couple more promo bits. We get another backstage promo with the Prophecy, and uh, Ring of Honor tried to do this weird thing on some shows where... They had the guys say, like, okay, you're ready to cut a promo? Yeah, we're going to cut a promo in, like, five seconds, five, four, three. I think it's like an ECW thing. I remember seeing that, like, in late-era ECW also. We're like, Like, oh, hey, let's get ready for this promo. Yeah, like, referring to them as promos and and showing us kind of, like, the few seconds before and after a little too long, like, trying to make it feel different. I don't think that's great, but, I mean, they were trying something. Yeah, whatever. 
Daniels gets annoyed by simply Luscious talking on her phone to her boyfriend, Steve Carino, which in turn sets Samoa Joe off, who's defensive that Daniels has a problem with Carino. Daniels gets pissed that Joe didn't have the prophecies back earlier when they were getting beat down by a bunch of the faces. Joe says for the hundredth time he's not paid to, you know, do anything but the matches they tell him to do. He leaves. The prophecy then do another take on their promo. Daniels basically cuts a promo for everybody, including Xavier, where Xavier barely has to speak. Daniels puts over, I mean, sets up Xavier and AJ's um, match on the next show for the title. And they end the promo saying they're going to go out looking for somebody. And which we go to cut to AJ Styles and Alexis Lurie are talking in what looks like a room the size of a phone booth. And... The prophecy attack them when they're in the middle of a conversation. Xavier shoves Lurie hard into a wall. So just when the streak of Ring of Honor shows with man-on-woman violence was going to end, they managed right at the buzzer to get some man-on-woman violence. <laughs> um, uh, you know there was a match between a man and a woman, right? Well, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to say unsanctioned man-on-woman violence. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to count them all equally, but that's good. <laughs> Okay, you intergender racist, but, um, so Ring of Honor streak of, oh yeah, I already said that, uh, Xavier then holds Lurie's arms behind her back so that Luscious can slap her hard right in the dang face, and they're just building to matches, which is good, but the matches they're building to are simply Luscious versus Alexis Lurie and Styles and Xavier, so. That's bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how they end the show, is setting up for Night of the Butcher that way. Well, that's one way to end it. Yeah, so, so what did you think of Scramble Madness as a whole? Uh, I thought it was good. It was very. It was a pleasant surprise. It was better than most ROH shows that year, um, even though it's never talked about. Uh, you know, it, it, it started out pretty pretty well. It had some really, some, a couple of really fun surprises, like Matt Thompson... Uh, and the the main event, the scramble match was really fun. A lot of the other stuff ha- was you know had some you know solid moments. I thought it was a just it was a good wrestling show. ROH has now produced two good wrestling shows in a row. So shut my mouth. <laughs> I'm never gonna shut your mouth, Matt, because that would ruin the podcast. Oh. But I will agree with you because I think this is a this was a show both of us I don't think really had thoughts or memories of going in. Like I said I don't think I've ever watched the full Yeah, show, so. maybe even a little hesitation about this show. And I think this is one of the hidden gems. Maybe I mean we're two shows still we have to watch to finish 2002, but right now I'm betting this is the hidden gem of 2002. People don't really talk about this show. There's no match of the year contender, but there are a quite a few good or better matches. I think there might be a match of the year contender. If you really love like crazy early indie skinny boy spot fests, like if you're Rob Naylor and I don't mean this as a negative, like you might, there might be a match of the year contender on this show because that scramble is really good at at that kind of match. Um, The Matt Thompson thing I think is maybe not worth buying a DVD to see, but worth seeing if you can see it. Hashtag Matt tweet, Matt. Hashtag do it, please, Joe Gagne, while you're answering our questions about what happened at the show live. That, has, on your... that, that hashtag might be too big for a tweet. <laughs> I'm just saying, Joe Gagne, I want you to be our answer man and answer every question we have about these shows ever, even if you weren't at the shows. Mm-hmm. But this is a show I'm actually going to say, like, again, no match of the year can- candidate, but it's worth getting if you can get it cheap. 
um, this is a this is not going to be a painful show to watch from start to finish. You're gonna you're not going to feel like your three hours were wasted. It's a good show, and that's going to bring us to the end of this show. We got a couple things to say. First off, as always, I'll say our next show will be. Night of the Butcher, because yes, Abdullah the Butcher main evented a dang Ring of Honor show. Believe it or not, he will team up with Homicide to take on the Carnage crew in a brawl, bunkhouse brawl. We'll also have AJ Styles versus Xavier for the Ring of Honor title. And we'll have what Matt, I think, correctly refers to as AJ, um, American Brian Danielson, Paul London 1.5. It's their first and a half match since That's their right. first match was a scrambles match. So... That's what we'll be having to look forward to, but as uh, I think Matt wanted to explain, like we might be a little longer next time. Yeah, we're usually what if we're in like a two to three week range, so think more in the three to four week range till our next show because I'm going to be away for a couple weeks, so I won't be able to. I don't know how much I'll be able to watch the next show for a while, but uh, we'll be back still very soon. And yeah, not going anywhere, and um, so all of the uh, deep vein thr- uh, thrombozos will uh, will not have to wait that long. But yeah, yeah, we just want to warn, and I'll no, I'll say that um, this is our tenth show. So if you if you miss us, if we take a little bit longer, I think at this point we you literally could stay awake for twenty four hours and do nothing but listen to us talk about two thousand two Ring of Honor. Oh my god, which is frightening. But I mean, these shows are evergreen. You can re listen to them if you're a true fan. You should. We expect it. Um, Unless you're a Nazi, in which case, do not listen. We yeah, you erase it. your memories of the old shows. Hit your head with a frying pan until then, you forget the good times you had. And then maybe you can forget the horrible uh, beliefs that you have as well. And if you do that, then you can listen to the show again. So write a note to yourself before you hit your head with the frying pan that says, if no longer Nazi, can listen to Through the Years. That That, that is approved. But Great. you'll need to know because you might not remember anything else. But um, <laughs> also, I also want to bring up I like to thank the Cousin once in a while, and I'd like to thank him here because for those who have just caught on in recent episodes, we started at thecubsfan.com. The show wouldn't exist without him. And if you still really need your fix of our show, if we're a little bit longer for the next time, we've done two episodes of Matt's great show through um, through the years. It is a great show that Matt does, but actually there's another one, List Them and Learn, was a whole other podcast Matt did about all sorts of things, lots of wrestling, but lots of other stuff, lots of great guests. But I did two episodes of that, so if you just want the Matt-Trevor combo, there's two more of those to listen to, including one about Ring of Honor that was basically the prequel to the show. Right. So I like to bring that up every once in a while because there's. I know we're leaving you for a little while, so I'm giving you the podcast equivalent of some snacks while Mommy and Daddy go out to a movie. So if you get hungry, they're there for you. And if you want to contact us, if you're feeling lonely and want to contact us, there is through the years at gmail.com for email. There's at Trevor Dame on Twitter for me. There's at Mayor MGF for Matt. There's the F4W board in the radio section. There's Voices of Wrestling in the Shill section. There's the great Pro Wrestling Only message board in the plug section. Many, many ways to contact us. Hashtag, hashtag DVTH. R-O-H-M-B-O-Z-O-S. I want to see it at least once out there. And I'm just going to say, I love that I check the message boards. Matt's going to be checking the hashtags. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's Matt's duty. That's your duty. That's on you, man. I will be doing and it. And 
if there's, I don't think there's anything else. Um, have a happy end of summer, everybody. And we're going to uh, 10 great episodes. We'll be back with 10 more and then we're done. <laughs> <laughs> if we both survive, we're going to keep doing it for as long as we can. So. Yeah. There's a lot to cover. So thank you again, everybody and happy summer. <laughs>